0: Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Lazkowski. Um, first and foremost, I do want to express my um, sentiments towards the people of France and Beirut in light of the recent attacks. Um, I, I was shocked and saddened when I found out about the terrorism that took place. And, I mean, you know, this is not like a political show or anything like that, obviously, but it, it's hard to ignore... What's going on in the world right now, and I was truly affected by it. I uh, I had to do some like serious meditating in the dark, <laughs> which you know it, it actually helps process a lot of difficult emotions. I realized, so I'm kind of grateful that I'm 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 doing some transcendental meditation to help you know process what's going on. But I, I just want to you know express that I hope in time this whole situation is alleviated and that fear mongering and callousness and the need to hurt innocent people um just stops completely um you know and i know that's like kind of crazy to bring right at the top here um but it's it's just something i had to express anyway boy oh boy do we have a show um we're here to talk about movies too bill yes Returning champion Bill Ackerman is here. Um, I'm Hello. glad.
1: I'm glad you're back. Yeah, glad to be back. Glad to uh, be talking about this particular director with you, uh, Krzysztof toff Yeah, I think
0: yeah. you know. Um, uh, I work in a town that is that has a lot of Polish people, and they come in. A lot of them volunteer to help. Uh, and you know, on a couple of occasions both recently and in the past i was told that in poland my last name would be pronounced leszkowski and i think um, yeah for the for the for the most part w's are pronounced as a you know hard v so it's kishlowski
1: yeah, Kishlavsky is I think how you say it. I when when he first became uh someone I heard of in college uh I think it was uh, everyone was pronouncing it Kishlavsky. Yeah, yeah. Um which is either, I'm I'm sure we'll probably go back and forth pronunciation-wise with No, I know, think
0: it, since it of rolls things. off the tongue easier and we are you know, um white Americans. Yeah. I think uh it's fine to say Kislowski, and it's easier to say it <laughs> since we're going to say his name so much yeah um but uh yeah it, 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 a lot of you know personal feelings are coming are going to come up in this episode i think you know not just because of my own polish heritage and kind of through osmosis practically learning about polish history and how you know he grew up in his childhood and you know how his filmmaking translated through the times uh so I mean and and then you know too, watching you know a couple of these you know the 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 three colors trilogy and you know experiencing what we saw with Paris and it's it's just like a lot of different feelings were conjuring up um, throughout this whole viewing experience and you know Sitting through the entire Decalogue is just heart-wrenching but invigorating at the same time.
1: Can I ask you, um, what was your first exposure to him? Did you did you see the Three Colors trilogies oh, yes. uh, oh, back yes. in the 90s? I'm assuming so.
0: Yeah, I, um, I want to say I saw Blue in the theater. Okay. Because this was... I don't know if this was before or after Pulp fiction when i started to when I was really getting into film and mostly anything with a Miramax label I was yeah. seeking out and just because like, oh yeah, I mean they this is a studio I need to pay attention to,
1: yeah, it was um, their heyday at the time
0: yeah, and that 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 year was something else um i don't yeah. did blue come out the same did all these come
1: out the same year? No, uh, well, I'm trying to think, because Blue is 93. Oh, okay. And then, you know, White followed, and then Red premiered alongside uh, Pulp Fiction at Cannes, and uh, was actually Ah. favored to win until Pulp Fiction upset it. Miramax wound up, you know, with both of them, of course, and, you know, both of them were quite successful in their own ways. Um, But Blue, White, and Red, I guess, came across, they came out within such quick succession that, I mean, he went, he was already kind of a, you know, a name because of Double Life of Veronique, but um, he was the biggest, I would say the biggest, you know, name in like foreign language film in the United States at that time. I mean, there was not really, um, i trying to think, there was not really a whole lot of competition as far as like big new voices uh, for European art, art, you know, auteur cinema. I mean, I think that was around the time... Maybe that Almodovar was starting to um, he had had women on the verge of a nervous breakdown in eighty eight, but like uh, you know, it's before like the rise of people like Haneke and Von Trier really as as like art house celebrities, and it was like way after um, you know, people like Bergman and Fellini and Godard. So Keslowski was really the big guy. And that, he was actually maybe the first contemporary foreign language director I ever really was exposed to, I think, besides I, think I actually saw his films before I saw Jeunet and Caro's films, which come around that same time too, like Delicatess and N.C. Lost Children. But for me, I think, I think I saw white first because it was around the same time as I had seen um, before Sunrise. And so I was curious to see Julie Delpy in European films. And then I went back to blue uh, and then I went to red. Um, but those were some of the first foreign films, like contemporary foreign films I ever saw. Um, so and then when I went to college, um, I saw Double Life of Veronique, and then actually saw the Decalogue in the theater. Oh, um, they showed it on you know on the big screen uh, two episodes every week. They would show them like one weekday and then one weekend day. So I would like every Saturday, my friends and I would go to see the Decalogue, and it was like oh. one of the most incredible uh, movie-going experiences, like taken in total. Um, but he was such a huge figure and it, it's, it's funny cause I think like the Criterion releases and all that help kind of raise his profile. But, um, I don't know that his influence, I mean, beyond like superficial things like sliding doors or, you know, things like Run, Lola, Run, I think that like that kind of, um, like heavy, thoughtful, like almost philosophical kind of art cinema. I don't know that it really crosses over to the same number of people now, um, I'm trying to think of any examples because you have, like, you know, the more, maybe more confrontational auteur directors like Von Trier, Haneke, or, you know, Breyat, or whatever, or even Amadovar, but, like, something like the Three Colors Trilogy I don't think could be made into a, uh, an art house event now without, like, someone like Miramax having that kind of muscle.
0: Yeah, no, totally.
1: Um, but, you uh, know, getting maybe ahead of ourselves starting, starting there. I was just curious, like, if you had the same experience as far as, like, Starting with three colors, and I think probably a lot of people—that's where they first oh, come yeah. to know his work.
0: Absolutely, and uh, you know, because I, you know, was a devoted um, watcher of the Siskel and Ebert show, I, um, I always looked forward to whatever they would endorse, and mm-hmm. I would, you know, make a note of okay, this is um, this is something that sounds fascinating, and they're giving it two thumbs up. Um, you know, I never took everything at face value. I never thought, like, oh, my God, everything they say I agree with or anything. But, yeah. you know, when they reviewed something foreign, um, and this was, you know, around the time of Pulp Fiction, I just, you know, I remember the the first thing I remember doing after uh, Pulp Fiction had sort of become a phenomenon was going to, I believe it was a Barnes & Noble, and finding my first... Um, biography of a director. And it was a very basic kind of like, you know, this was Quentin, you know, the man and his movies kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, kind of short. Um, and it just like chronicles, you know, his um, experience as a video store clerk. and But the, the, the highlight for me, of course, was going into the back and seeing like a list of 50 movies that he considered his favorites or inspired and influenced him and this was after I'd seen Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and just decided like okay I want to know what this guy's all about and you know he had obviously many foreign films listed in that list and Mm. you know it was just something that I remember specifically you know seeking out based on my love of a movie like I want to learn more besides like just like oh I love this movie and that's that because um, you know, before then, like you know, even if I loved a movie like, you know, um, uh, like *Natural Born Killers* or something, um, right. I would just be like, "That was cool, man. I want to tell my friends about it, and maybe I'll see it again. Maybe I won't." But with *Pulp Fiction*, it was like, "I want to deconstruct this. This was like maybe my first. You know, if if I had a microphone in front of me, I probably would have done my own *Director's Club* uh, on cassette tape or something because it, it really just um, blew me away and." You know, so, you know, from there it was Miramax and, um, you know, his Rolling Thunder label obviously introduced me to Chunking Express and One Car Y. So I would, I would probably say it was Kislowski, um, and then seeing, um, City of Lost Children because I remember people saying it was very Terry Gilliam influenced. Uh, and then, um, chunking express i think like those were my f- three first exposures to foreign cinema
1: that's actually really funny that you say that because those were three like uh similarly important films to me all three uh filmmakers one car wise chunking express was you know a revelation you know when i saw it in uh, in ithaca um and that was um yeah same same uh, i think city of lost children was maybe the first thing i saw at the angelica in new york um oh, man. You know, and i'd I read about it just i think because of the uh comparisons to lynch because angelma dellamente had done the music and it had oh, yeah. all these kind of offbeat kind of you know elements in the plot description i just saw it on a whim i don't think i even knew delicatessen maybe or i hadn't heard of it but i'd never seen it until later um but yeah koslowski i think it's funny like researching him for this podcast, I forgot how young he was when he died. Like he was a younger man. Like he was born later than like De Palma or Wes Craven or uh you know, other directors that were active up until like Peter Bogdanovich up until real recent you know, you know, people like he was he was only in his fifties when he died. But yeah. I always think of him as older because, you know, I was really young when I first heard of him. But
0: uh Yeah, he 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 passed, you know, um very close to around my dad's age, too soon, and,
1: yeah. you
0: know, it's just like, I, I, I can't imagine the kinds of films he would go on to make, and I know he went out on such a high note, but, yeah, I, but I think, um, much like my dad, <laughs> he yeah. was, uh, you know, he was a smoker, and a heavy one at that, yeah. uh, so, I mean, there there was just like, I I did some light research here and there too on the man himself, and, you know, Hearing hearing some stories, really, I don't know. I felt I felt a lot more of just kind of um, a personal connection to the guy. Maybe just maybe I don't know if it's just something as you know um, simple as like oh we're both Polish or something. But right. it, it, you know there was just I, I I think his films really do speak to me. But again and this is unfortunate when you do host a movie podcast, it's not always something that's easy to articulate. You just feel it um, in a way that's, again, very hard to describe. I want right. to get to all that yeah, um, in a bit. Um, and not to derail <laughs> us, of course, but I do want to bring up a couple of things for our listeners um, at the top here um, that I think are is worth mentioning. And first of all... I. You know, I should have mentioned this a lot sooner, but <laughs> I want to thank everybody for contributing to the horror movie show um, that was pretty spectacular. I mean, oh, yeah. all, all my respect and gratitude go to uh, both Gabe and Patrick for their hard work. It's like seven hours, but it was a, a joy to listen to. Um, and as Patrick mentioned at the top of that horror show episode... I'd like to ask for some support in the upcoming podcast network endeavor, and it's really just a donation. That if you feel like giving, you can. If you don't, obviously the show is going to remain free. So if you like music and you like film, I think you're going to enjoy the podcast network that I hope to launch in mid January. Um, it's it's really pop culture heavy. It might, it might evolve and other shows might come into fruition. Um, but if you do decide to donate, um, it goes to help all these new podcasts, um, including Bill Ackerman's show, <laughs> uh, wink, wink. Yes. Uh, so I will, and, and in return, I will, um, initially off the bat here, I will give you some free music and I'm also going to be putting up that Lost Groundhog Day episode that Patrick and I did years ago when we were both snowed in. Um, so, I mean, you you can just buy that for a buck and you get like a lost um, podcast episode of Directors Club, which is es- essentially a what we watch segment for an hour and a half.
1: I think it's one of the most charming episodes of the Directors Club as someone that has listened to all of them.
0: <laughs> well, that's very nice of you to say, Bill. Really. <laughs> Um, it's, 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 it's cute. (laughs) Yeah. It's no, I mean like that was, that was before we got jaded and cynical. So, um, yeah, all you have to do is go to popcultureclub.net, click on records slash donate and you can buy my music, um, which is just, you know, my monikers are garden on a trampoline. And I did do a collaboration with my friend Megan as the anniversary party, So either of those records you can buy for just a buck um, or there's also the director's club band camp there where you can pay a minimum donation of a buck and get our parody songs or the lost groundhog day episode, as I just mentioned. So all the proceeds go to help this show as well as pay the hosting server costs for the upcoming podcast network, which will most likely be called now playing. So the now playing network is going to be launching very soon, and I could be more excited about this. Um, so, yeah, and and in addition, there's also a chance for you to win an Amazon gift card for $25. And instead of asking for an iTunes review, you know what, I just decided all you have to do is email me at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Email me your name. That's all you have to do to enter, and the winner will be chosen around Christmas. I want to give, because we have... We have episode 100 coming up, and it's Christmas time very soon. I, uh, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to put forth much effort. Just send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com, and you'll automatically be entered to win a gift card from Amazon for twenty five dollars. So yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, um, yeah, and episode 100 is coming up, and honestly, I don't know if I have anything planned. Um, I was going to ask you, yeah, if you had any. Uh- because, you know, like I did a silly retrospective greatest hits episode <laughs> earlier on this year when, yeah. um, you know, I wasn't sure what the fate of the podcast was going to be. But, um, you know, maybe a fun bonus episode featuring Patrick and myself will will happen.
1: Um, yeah. I had an idea that I think we spoke about off mic about, um, I don't know if I want to say it like on while we're recording, but you I had an idea. I, well, I had the idea of, of, uh, interviewing you about each of the episodes you've done so far, both of you, your memories going back to the Cameron Crow episode and going director by director. Wouldn't that take forever? It would take a long time, but <laughs> I think if they can get through seven hours of horror commentary that, you know, loyal listeners might, you know, I don't know how long it would take to, you know, to get through even half of them, but, uh,
0: well, you know. I, I, I'm willing to <laughs> install a catheter and um, you know, have my meals sent to me via Grubhub. Yeah. So I mean, I, I'm,
1: I'm, I, I think I'm people want to have the behind the scenes of that Dipama episode. I think people want to know.
0: <laughs> I, I'd be very nervous. It's almost like when um, I forgot what episode. You know, it might have been episode 400 or something of Mark Marin's show where um, I think it was Mike Berbiglia. Mark, Mark, uh, Mike Berbiglia interviewed Mark Maron. Like they turned oh, the tables yeah. on him or something. So that. It's kinda of scary. But um yeah. yeah, so that's all the that's all the business I wanted to take care of here up front. Um Let's do this, man. We got right. we got a lengthy conversation coming up here on the one and only Kislovsky. <laughs> um <laughs> that was a weird way to pronounce his name. <laughs> Kislovsky I'm like a pearl. in a while, like I said, a filmmaker just comes along and casts a spell on me um, but it's 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 hard to decipher the specific feelings I feel when watching his work because um his films are very dense and they feel like a lucid dream at times they're very meditative um, gosh this, this you know even if i 'm just like you know going off the top of my head, it feels like a similar predicament that Patrick and I faced. When we've talked about a couple of directors in the past, like Alma Dovar, or when you know Zach brought up his feelings about you know how he feels talking about David Lynch, it's it's not something that I can just say. This is exactly what I think makes Kislovsky one of the greatest directors of all time um, on an objective level. Mm-hmm. You know, from, yeah, I, go ahead. I, I want was you gonna to say, talk. like
1: I I've uh, yeah I had only seen. I had seen uh everything from from I guess uh Decalogue on uh you know, since like you know, maybe since I was in my like uh late teens, early twenties, and then I had seen Camera Buff, but I had never seen I don't think I had seen anything else. Like I had not seen Blind Chance or No End or The Scar or really a lot of his documentary work. So some of this was new territory for me and then some of it like I hadn't seen Camera Buff in a long time. I'd actually hosted a screening of that in college. Uh, it was interesting oh, wow. watching it now just thinking like man, I you know, like I forgot like so much of this. I had a totally different memory of even what the fate of the character was. It, it's been it's been so long. Um but uh it's interesting like uh did you get a chance to watch any of his documentary work? I did not. I know that um
0: you know, a lot of it It's supposed to be, you know, very politically driven. And, you know, it it sort of mirrors the times. I mean, you know, communism was so prevalent, and it was very, very difficult to freely express your vision. Um, A lot of it was censored. Um, Even stuff like, I I think, stuff like Blind Chance and uh, No End.
1: Well, Blind Chance was shelved for, what, like six years?
0: Yeah, something like that. Because
1: it was made before uh, No End, but came out, Much later, Um, the thing—the thing with him, from what I can tell—is that he, because he had kind of an even-handed approach to the subject matter at a time when things were, you know, you either had like you know communist party, you know, or you had anti-communist, you know, population like these, like these two very extreme uh, perspectives, and neither one of them would be that crazy about what he was doing because he was so even handed to both sides, you know, when dealing with matters of politics. And I think that both of them wanted a propaganda for their side with him. And so he got, you know, he got into, I don't want to say he got into trouble, like as a, um, like the way, like say Andrzej Żuawski or some of the other Polish directors that were like a little bit more cutting edge. Like he, he got the films really He did run into censorship problems, but, um, You know, for the most part, he got attacked from both sides for being too much in the middle. But if you look at what he does after the politics kind of recede, you know, in the in the in the the, you know the co-productions, the French films, um, he's trying to find things that tie everyone together. He's not trying to uh, alienate one side or the other. And I think maybe. When he was divorcing it from politics and getting into more metaphysical territory, I mean, it became even much more, I mean, internationally in scope. But um, but it it it's, it ties back to those same films. It's just that I think he was still kind of kind of seeing things through a political lens, you know, with the with the early features. Um, I guess from what I, from the the, you know, the documentary work, a lot of it is is dealing with trying to. Um, they classify the Polish experience as he was seeing it through occupations, and so you have things like you know hospital or factory or things that are defining people by their occupations and then kind of you know the relationship of the individual versus the system, so they have that political edge but they 're also um they they're they're very nuts and bolts they're not they they're very realist uh all the stylization that we would see like in something like blue is not a hint of it. Um, that's interesting to I me think-
0: because, like, I, I imagine that even if there's, you know, political, you know, text going on within these documentaries, he's still focused on the ordeal of the individual, which yeah. I I think is just something that stuck with him. You know, I think that's that's who he is. He's first and foremost using cinema to create empathy and. You know, he, he sort of grounds it in reality early on. I think. You know, I mean, something like something like Camera Buff really. You know, I think it's got to be. It's it's clearly very very personal.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. So let's let's. I mean, the scar. I, did, did you get a chance to see the scar? Uh, no. It's it's interesting. I guess as a starting point, but it's it's not. I I wouldn't say it's a major work. I've seen some pieces that kind of celebrate it. it's that's what i've heard i think i mean i you know that was actually one that kieslowski himself was not overly fond of and i don't even remember it being in circulation um back in the day until like maybe until the kino dvd um a few years back now but i guess when when i first started finding his stuff i mean you couldn't find the scar as easily as no end, of blind chance, and uh, camera buff. But the um, camera buff was the first one to get like real attention outside of Poland, and that's probably a good one to start with. What, what was your what was your first impression of that? I really liked it
0: quite a bit. I think it's interesting going backwards, or you know, looking looking at one of his earlier works because I see, you know, I, I think of his visual aesthetics and his palette as as being something. Um, Kind of transcendent, something something that I've I'm kind of floored by, not just in the Three Colors trilogy, but clearly in something like uh, Double Life of Veronique with um, those green hues, and you know going back to something sort of raw, um like Hammerbuff, buff that's you know almost almost cinema verite, not not like shaky cam or anything, but you right. know it's still you know kind of got this immediacy to it that um you know clearly you know like I mentioned has that, has that political leaning towards it because even though it, it it is focused on this, you know, individual character and on a micro level, there's still something to be said about the fact that this protagonist who, um, sort of becomes infatuated with capturing things on film is censored early on by his own wife when he's trying to film his daughter. Um, and she says, "Oh, you know, don't don't film our daughter naked, right now."
1: Yeah, well, let's 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 just in case people are hearing this and not seeing camera buff. So the the plot of it is uh, a, a new father uh, gets a, a camera to initially document the uh, you know the birth and childhood of his of his new daughter, and he becomes so kind of caught up with documenting other things and then documenting things at work and then when his workplace notices that he has a camera, they bring him in to document a a gala event and make it into a film. And (laughs) he gets further and further alienated from friends and family and more kind of caught up in the idea of documenting things. But a social conscience emerges in him that puts him at odds with the workplace as he wants to create real art and create art that has kind of a like sociopolitical kind of importance to it
0: yeah he's essentially making propaganda films for the factory that he works at which yeah. is very interesting um and like the the little was it like a film festival that he shows his movie at too where there's yeah. uh, real uh directors there
1: yeah uh, one of his real contemporaries Anusi uh, was uh, plays himself in the film right what's what's interesting about it is because it's very if you know Koslovsky's own uh, story it, it, it very closely mirrors what his own experience well, it, it, in a metaphorical way I guess but you know, but like dealing with his own experience as a documentarian because one of the things that pushed him away from the documentary not just the censorship and interference but um. When he would, uh, you know, do these documentaries for television, real people maybe saying things that were a little bit, you know, embarrassing, that would carry over to their real life and it would make problems for people's own personal lives. And I think he felt like self-conscious about invading people's privacy, um, yeah. In, in a sense that, like, you know, and the, you know, the way the one character, um, like one, one character, like the uh, the little person that he documents against his. Uh, employer's wishes he's moved to tears by you know being uh, given that kind of respect on film So, he, but at the same time another person that is a supporter of his at work loses their job you know over involvement with his work and so you, you're seeing like a uh, both the pros and cons of what he's doing um, I think that when he gets the sense that his his work is going to have a destructive or propaganda kind of uh, effect. He, uh, he he turns on the work and turns the camera on himself, going from the objective observer to the uh, the, the subject of of his work. Yeah, that's that's to,
0: that to me is um, a really fascinating character study that. Uh like I mean as I'm watching it I, I, I immediately think, well this is this is very this has to be kind of autobiographical. And was you know, was you know, having watched some of his documentaries, were they very similar to you know the the kinds that that the, the you know the the, yeah. the father yeah, no, was, yeah. the father was shooting in, in camera? Yeah, buff? they
1: are, they are. They're very I mean, they're very uh unobtrusive style. Yeah. Like um one of them, like Factory, has uh like it contrasts you know, factory workers with like a board meeting and like the um Oh wow.
0: That's very similar then.
1: Yeah. So it's it, it is it is definitely uh not too far from it. And it it doesn't quite have the same they don't quite have the same um like going back to the documentaries looking for evidence of like the themes of the three colours, let's say, it's it's a little bit difficult. I don't think they're you're not gonna find them in things like hospital or factory other than just you know interconnectivity, like which is you know a hallmark of the workplace but it's not it's not quite um, you know it's like going back to the industrials that Robert Altman shot looking for nashville you 're not really going to find too many clues of it um, but yeah camera buff i think um, I think of the early films without a whole lot of political background in terms of what was going on in Poland, that one is probably one that I think is more accessible in terms of uh, you can just relate to it as a as a uh, as a character study without a whole lot of background. Like I I remember really loving that film. I had no clue about any of the behind the scenes. You know, uh, like Kieslowski's own life, or even what was going on in Poland at the time that he made that film. Um, I think it's a lot more accessible than um, No End or The Scar or even maybe Blind Chance. Um, as far as you, you sympathize with this character, he's a he's a sympathetic. Hero, even though did you did you get a sense um, that the film was pro or con what he was doing when you were watching it?
0: I thought it was pretty even. I mean, I don't know if it necessarily took a stance either way, which I kind of liked. I mean, there, the, you know, I mean, I, I, it's interesting because it does mirror a little bit. I mean, you know, talking about the political implications of what was going on in Poland, you know. At, certain, at different instances in Kiszlawski's life, he had to either deal with you know Russians or Germans invading his country and mm-hmm. basically taking over with communism and basically editing his life and the w- or editing the country in the way it should be um, yeah. and the way that people wanted to live they could not live and I think um, you know you know it's 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 just one of those movies that works on such an interesting um meta level in that regard where it's like you can look at it as a simple character study and enjoy it for what it is at, you know in terms of a story of a man who just you know kind of goes too far and has an obsession it alienates him from his friends and family um but his passion is also kind of understandable because he's getting a lot of recognition and um acclaim and like for doing something kind of simple just shooting what is there
1: yeah but Uh, you can see also that he's being torn from both directions because the workplace and those that are supportive of his filmmaking they both have agendas yeah yeah yeah. they they both want him to be like the uh the spokesperson for their ideology and he's kind of caught in the middle in, in, in a way, I mean, it's it probably a good summing up of what all the, the Polish films, you know, the features, at least that I've seen. I haven't seen uh, some of the ones made for TV that aren't widely available in you know, the United and you, States. And you could
0: also be describing Blind Chance there, too, yeah. like with the first two segments.
1: And Blind Chance got into trouble uh, because yeah. of that even-handedness. Um, you know, because that, that also... I'm trying to think. I don't The... The country fell under martial law. Right. And I'm trying to think of the the time frame as to when Blind Chance was supposed to come out. I think it would have kind of lined up right when that was happening. I could be getting the dates slightly off. But I, I think that, that that's probably why it was censored for so many years. And then ultimately, I guess, it maybe came out with Shots Missing, like in the that, late 80s.
0: That was... I couldn't. Like, I I think I took a still of that, and I'm going to include that um, in the show notes because it's very rare to experience censorship even today, and to watch a Criterion released film that you know, as you're watching it, all of a sudden, there, you know, there's a moment where it says, "Oh, sorry, this part could not get restored; it was still censored." Um, Yeah. Which well, <laughs> it sort of almost reminds me of that, you know. It's it's very different, but it's, it it still reminds me of like when you're watching um, uh, the, the censored version of storytelling, and you see the big black box over the sex scene or something. Oh, sure. Or I'm just like, oh man, still uh, still couldn't get past that, huh? Oh well. But I mean, something something like Camera Buff, I, I, and you know this this comes up quite a bit in in a lot of his work in a way mm-hmm. where it's an ethical examination and in this case it's about a filmmaker sort of torn between whether or not he should present the truth even if it inadvertently implicates other people's lives right and a lot a, I think that's a struggle that Kizlowski, you know faced you know even in a lot of his fictional films because time and time again and it's probably why my two favorite films of his more or less kind of involved duality and um you know voyeurism too is something because it's just like you know something that i imagine any filmmaker must experience like is this you know okay how much how much truth should i present um you know and how much how much can i how much can i really bring to the table from my own personal experience because like at that time you could get in deep shit <laughs> for yeah.
1: for being too
0: honest more or
1: less yeah, yeah it's yeah that, that, that kind of paranoia i mean it, it definitely is something that hovers over all these early films um just watch like what you say that and, uh, that
0: uh, the film school that you know he, he went to is still to this day you know sort of lauded and you know uh, everybody's you know sings its praises and i think polanski went there a lot of yeah, and Jay
1: word. Vida, too. Um, is, it, is it? I don't know. If it's pronounced. Is it Lowe's?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, that's where. I mean, thank God for 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 that campus and you know the, the having uh, a private screening room there where they could watch American films and they basically got their education there and that's where Kraslavsky saw Ken Loach film and was forever yeah. changed. Uh, you know, early on, there the, you know he just. He, he got to experience a lot of things that shaped him into the filmmaker that he became. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think camera buff, you know, presents a, a conflicted man that probably he always was in some ways. And then, you know, obviously as uh you know, martial law gradually relaxed, he was able to completely look inward and do more introspective and existential films that weren't, as politically representative of the times,
1: did you get a chance to see No End?
0: No, that's uh that one. I, the Scar and No End are, are two omissions that I kind of regret, but at the same what? time, they weren't like as highly praised as uh, the other ones. Yeah,
1: no, I think you saw the ones that I think you would like the best, but uh, the um, I think Criterion's Hulu channel is adding all of these films we're talking about so far this week or next because I'm pretty sure they they got the rights to. I want to say all the Kino handled films. I oh, don't know really? if that, I think that means Decalogue, but I, I well, Blind Chance is only one of the, of the four that, that Kino used to distribute. So I would imagine that means they've got the scar camera buff, no end. And I've heard they got the Decalogue, which would probably also mean short film about love and short film about killing also. So lots more Kieslowski to come from them, uh, which is, I'm very excited about getting Blu-rays of all those films.
0: Well, honestly, even though we're covering the majority of his work, he's, again, yeah. because I love him so much, he's somebody I wouldn't mind doing a part two on because there's only so much we can talk about in two and a half, three hours. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know, something like Camera Buff, I do have, like, a couple of things where... It's, it's, it's something like, do you, do you contextualize it for the times... And the culture to say like you know okay it has a couple of things that you know just sort of rub me the wrong way where it's like he's having an argument with his wife and what is she, what does he do before she leaves you know he does yeah. the little uh, pretending like she's in frame with his fingers like you All know right. <laughs> yeah I yeah, just yeah. find that kind of silly I mean yeah. Maybe maybe that's some levity. Maybe maybe that's all that really is. It's just like okay, you know, it's a really intense emotional scene, very soap op- soap operatic in a way, and then all of a sudden he just like does this kind of ridiculous gesture. Um, but I mean, I more or less found that silly and in, in tonally off with the scene. Mm-hmm. But you know, then again, it's not like a, a huge strike against it. It's just something I was kind of like, eh, I don't know if that yeah. worked. And you know, the ending. The very last shot is kind of powerful, but also very obvious, too.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's not a perfect film, but it's it, I think there's a lot that's compelling about it. Oh, and sure. It,
0: it, when you frame it, too, in, in, in Kieslowski's career and learning about what he went through and learning about the climate politically in Poland,
1: it's if you have all that in mind while you're watching it, I think it adds to the experience. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I loved it knowing none of that when I was younger, but I think it's a richer film to me now, knowing just I mean how much it's really the most. It feels like the most personal of all the films in a way. Um, the uh, yeah, it felt very autobiographical. <laughs> yeah, a quick word on on no end, even though it comes after blind chance which we should we should definitely talk about oh, sure chance um but no end it's interesting because it does deal with the martial law thing as the backdrop for the action and in a way it's kind of like a um it's almost like a dry run for blue in some ways because the main character is a widow um and it's it, i've heard that it's the first real breakaway from the realistic kind of naturalism of the of the uh things like camera buff and the scar because it has a ghost from the first scene on of the uh Of her husband, like as a kind of like watching character. Um, I heard the ghost isn't a strength of the film. It's it's a little awkward, but it's not a major component of it. It's not like you know. I think I heard a comparison to the wing uh, wings of desire, the angel, and uh, it's not quite it's not quite like that. Um, But it's 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 a little bit tricky because it it, it, it's dealing with like a kind of almost like not quite a courtroom thriller, but it's dealing with a lawyer. Trying to get a uh, a man out of prison for political activism, Uh, at the same time, it's also telling the story of this woman that is grieving and almost kind of numb uh, because of the death of her husband. Um, These things kind of, however, you know, it works or doesn't work for you. It probably depends on how well you feel like those two strands kind of work in harmony. You know, for no end. I, I think it's it feels like the transitional film. To the more, uh, you know, the metaphysical kind of uh, things like uh, *Double X Veronique, and Three Colors*, then the um, hmm. it, it's like it's like the midway point, I think, between it's still kind of dealing with like the social realism, like in the political uh, aspect of uh, his career. But it, it, there's there's hints of where he's going, um, and I think that one also kind of came under fire for the same thing because. Uh, you know, it's not as critical of the communists or the anti-communists as either side, you know, was hoping. Um, so, and I think maybe his frustration with that is probably one of the more thing that pushed him towards the universal themes of Decalogue, which comes next. Um, sure, but let's go. Let's go back to Blind Chance and what was your impression of that one? Well, um,
0: for those of you who don't know this, this one was you know. Um, censored and banned for quite a while and, you know, it was just recently put out through Criterion, which made me so happy because I think it, like, came out as, like, as we were as I announced, or as I was inviting Bill to talk about Kieślowski, it was like it's coming out on Criterion, yay! Um, And then it's coming in the mail so I was all excited. Um, And it's essentially a conceptual predecessor to, you know, stuff like Run, Lola, Run and Sliding Doors where You know, it 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 explores three different fates of a protagonist, with each thread stemming from a sort of a rush to catch a train to Warsaw, and the results. Because I don't know how you feel about this. Um, There's something called the multiverse theory, which I have always been kind of a proponent of just like the idea of it actually existing which you know is um kind of the basis for that ridiculous but entertaining show sliders and uh the lead singer of the band eels his father came up with this with this um theory he was a he, I, he was i did not know that he, he was he was a <laughs> physicist and um, believe that for every decision we make, it branches off into these own universes, essentially, whatever the results of. Like, right now there's um, another me still living in Michigan. Um, So, I mean, like, just the idea of that, and I think that's also, you know, like kind of the basis for that bad film, um, Another Earth. But um, (laughs) this really, really got to me. Um, and it also like, I think r- I read a review from Mike D'Angelo who called like the thesis of this movie bullshit because like he, th- he, he sort of, he sort of sees the protagonist or Kislowski's um, theme of the movie as humans are very susceptible to whatever they're presented with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me that's an extension of what, um, you know, uh, Christoph says in Truman Show where he says we accept <laughs> the reality of with which we're presented. And I honestly think that's the truth. And yeah. we sort of, you know, absorb our environment and our surroundings. And it's not to say that, like, you know, this, this guy is just really naive or he's really um, – you know he's just a sponge, and he's just like okay, I'll become a communist just because this. Yeah, I met this guy, and you know in in the second scenario, he's you know anti-communist. I, yeah. I think it's just exploring you know just the the differences, I mean, just like what can happen in the in, in the blink of an eye and split second if you know you don't catch that train. If you do catch that train, and what happens if you do join a certain Or you know, organization or not, and the 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 (laughs) one of the highlights for me, the Mm -hmm. two different folk songs, Um, and oh yeah, like in the two different in the two different parties, and you're getting to hear, especially in the second one, the entire song, and his response to it, and also just his desire to break free of either extreme, too, um, in the first two segments, and then in the third segment. It's basically neutral. Like, he doesn't yeah. want to become a part of any movement. He's living an apolitical, homely life, and you know. I but the ending to me. Can we spoil the ending? I don't Should know. We... I don't know. That's a tough call because not enough people have seen this.
1: Okay, um, well, and I, I will. I will say. <sighs> I will say that uh, it's what, what's interesting about Blind Chance is that yeah, it, in a way, it's trying to. Bring together the political extremes that are challenging him, like you know the communists and the anti-communists. Like bring them both together, like showing them that he's trying to humanize them. Something very arbitrary could totally determine the path towards either extreme, or render this a, a, a third alternative, which is apolitical. But without giving too much away, I would say that the film is. critical of the apolitical as much as it's critical of either extreme politically um it it doesn't make an argument that being apolitical in these matters is necessarily better and um it's it's just funny because that became really the path that Kozlowski himself took after uh after no end um you know he became um well we'll get to Veronique in, in a little bit but the uh you know the um i think i think the first time i watched it i wasn't sure how much the politics were going to be necessary to appreciate it like to have an understanding for what was going on at the time but um it's it's a very brilliantly made it's more stylish right up the bat than camera buff or any of the earlier films like it's a lot more um uh, forget who the dp was on that but like it's starting to move towards like the stylization of things like you know veronique and the three colors um
0: yeah it has some great tracking shots um very carefully composed uh you know movements where you know like there's there's subjective and objective points of view and an emphasis on private moments of like you know characters observing each other in a way and like you know really vulnerable and intimate scenes um you know the this in the first segment where he's you know having sex and everything and like there's just there's just really beautifully intimate and human moments throughout this entire movie and it doesn't again he doesn't really judge either stance but i mean again it's really hard to talk about the ending <laughs> um and it's like I want to say, like, it's it's probably his most pessimistic film, maybe? Just because of, like, yes. just the outcome? Because I, I, I think, also, Mike D'Angelo was reading this movie as, like, it doesn't matter what you do. Do you, do you agree with that? Like, it doesn't matter if you're communist, anti-communist, or apolitical. That ending is still going to happen.
1: Hmm. I You know, I mean, that's, that's definitely one way to read it. I don't know that I took it that way. I think I took it as um, you know because the the character in the in the third version of events uh, he falls in love he goes to medical school he he doesn't want to take sides in this conflict he's essentially taking the perspective of Kraslavsky himself because he's 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 not invested in that dialogue um but he when he when he makes his first decisions that are politically motivated you know um you know the repercussions mm. uh are are unkind to him but that's i you know i don't want to go further yeah, into yeah, but yeah. um yeah
0: it's that's it, the, the it, ending is shocking
1: yeah um
0: and it sort of it makes you immediately want to rewatch the beginning too
1: yeah yeah, it's, it was a very, I mean, I I I knew that film had a reputation. I think that was one of the only Polish films I'd met fans of when I was first getting into the, you know, you, learning more about him in, in college. I, met, I remember meeting people that were fans of Blind Chance, but I had never had seen it before this year. Um, it was definitely the, my favorite of the ones that I saw for the first time, uh, you know, preparing for this uh, podcast. But uh, and I, I definitely would recommend it to people, uh, even if they're... Not necessarily interested in the political aspects of it. It's a, it's you know, it's a, it's compelling in an incident kind of way. Like it's not very, uh, I don't want to say it's plot heavy because I mean, it has a it has a plot, but it, it, it the, the way individual scenes play out is what the overall appeal is. Even if you get past the whatever the gimmick of the structure, and what that's saying, it's still enjoyable just on a scene by scene basis too.
0: Right. Exactly
1: yeah um so i just I,
0: I definitely wonder um maybe for part two we'll talk more about the ending yeah um, but yeah. I mean it's like i it's one of those movies too where when it was always like god I wonder what I really do wonder because you know i i I kind of know what you know patrick's take um like his his philosophy of life is mm-hmm. um you know it kind of it kind of mirrors a little bit of something like uh crimes and misdemeanors. Sure. Um, and, you know, we, we've we sort of been at odds, you know, pessimism versus optimism kind of throughout, you know, the course of our friendship to where that ending, I, um, I kind of connected with the ending, <laughs> which was, I don't know, if, but like just, it just sort of mirrors my current state of mind at that moment or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it like really affected me. And I was like, okay, I, this is something I think I want Patrick to see to see if he's going to really like, um, be taken with this movie, or if he's just gonna, you know, be sort of uh, cynical towards it, the way Mike D'Angelo was because of the quote unquote gimmick and right. the idea of like, oh, we're all susceptible, you know, we're we're just we're sheep, right? Well, like that's yeah. the idea I think Mike D'Angelo was getting at was yeah.
1: like we are sheep. If you find the whole structure too schematic, then it's gonna you know feel like just an exercise. But I don't think it plays that way. Like I don't think you need to just. I mean, that makes it a fun thing maybe to discuss in the lobby after you leave the theater. But it's not what you're thinking of in the moment watching it. I mean, you're following these you know engagingly you know told uh, dramas. You know, I don't know. I, I it's what I'm looking forward to going back to because I haven't I haven't gone back to it to really think about the the structure of what comes later watching it at, you know, in the beginning, but I do know um, this one I'm excited to, to revisit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like the beginning suggests uh, it's something like a, uh, it's hard to talk about, but it, maybe it's like kind of a prototype to the ending of red without like going too deep. into. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that I could see that. Maybe. Maybe it all just depends on the person, too. I don't know. Like, it's one yeah. of those things where, depending on who you are, is, you know, how you're going to read the ending, I guess. Maybe. Yeah. Perhaps. But, um, going from there...
1: Yes. So, we, the decalogue... We can...
0: That's the thing, is, like, we can do probably a whole other episode. Um, Just on the decalogue. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like, it, it's just... It's a masterpiece in every way, shape, and form. Clearly, I like some segments more than others. Well, yeah, that's that's fair. That's
1: a given. Um,
0: Yeah.
1: Now, it was originally made for
0: TV, right?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah, it, it was, and then there were three that were supposed to be expanded into features, and the third one never got made. I think he was just too burned out. But um, Decalogue 9 was supposed to be made into a short film about jealousy, I think was the title. Oh, wow. But but short film about killing uh, was a big film festival sensation, and that kind of paved the way for the Double-Ath Véronique. And, you know, I mean, Decalogue itself was a a talking point kind of art film, but because of the length of it, it was... Uh, a difficult film to exhibit and i don't think that i would have probably had the chance to see it had the three colors not been such a big success um i think that allowed me to see it i think in 96 or 7 was when they were showing it in ithaca um so i don't know if they were showing it that much in the united states prior to that um Actually, I remember I interned at Criterion, um, in 98 and they were trying to get the Decalogue back then. And I remember the, uh, the rights were owned by a woman, I think in Canada that just wanted a, a lot more money than they thought was reasonable <laughs> for them. Oh, what so it was hel- it was actually held up for a long time until that Facets release. Uh, cause they just, I mean, that happens to film sometimes. I don't know how much the whole sidebar, but just the, uh. When someone uh, you know controls the rights for something, and that like, that's their bargaining chip, sometimes that keeps certain films out of distribution. But uh, no, I think our audience um, is
0: going to be very interested because, like, I bet they're thinking, okay, are they going to go in chronological? Order? Are they going to really go through all ten stories? Now we didn't really yeah. talk about this ahead of time, and honestly, yeah. like, this is kind of one of those weird meta Charlie Kaufman moments where, like, we sort of step out of the podcast for a second and sort of analyze how we want to approach this um mm-hmm. <laughs> like have a commentary of a commentary of a commentary but um mm-hmm. i um i think we can sort of jump around sure because it's like sure. it's really hard to just like say okay part 1 go part 2 go part 3 and you know
1: it'll, it'll, what were your favorites
0: yeah you know let's yeah. do that because like i think we can agree that part 1 is is kind one
1: of the greatest one of the greatest things ever. Made. Yeah, pretty
0: much. <laughs> um, it's like you know a mini movie in of itself.
1: Yeah. Well, they're all. I mean, they all feel like complete films. I mean, I mean, you know the 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 running time for Hollywood feature films wasn't much longer than an hour. Sometimes was an hour back in the '30s. Um, you know, it, at, at other decades too, but the uh, '30s and '40s. Um, you know, seventy-minute features are not uncommon. So for these to be like about sure. fifty-five minutes, they don't feel they—they they feel like they just the uh, there's no fat on them. But they are—they feel like feature films in terms of like their impact. They don't feel like uh, short subjects at all, to me anyway. Um, yeah, I think I think um, for for me the first six are the strongest, but. There's not one that I would say is not enjoyable. Uh, and I think that one and four are probably the best ones that are not, you know, made into feature films. Because um, I think short film about love is is really remarkable. And short, short film about killing, I find really powerful, but it's... Um, it almost reminds me of Haneke, because it's it's the one yeah. that has the most overt message aspect to it, and it's you know, and it like Haneke, it also you know, it it it's using violence in a way that is meant to teach a lesson, and I sometimes get a little bit, um, I have sometimes reservations about that, <laughs> but, but uh, I thought of um,
0: I thought of the sweet hereafter too a little bit just because w- of like you know obviously the tragedy that takes place, but just like the, you know, the, the, the relationship between a father and a child, um, being oh, sure. kind of difficult and not that, not, not that like they have a difficult relationship, but just like the outcome of what happens again, it's yeah. like, it's one of those things too, where if you haven't seen the Decalogue, I mean, I don't want to spoil the first one, I think, because it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of clear what's going to happen. I don't think it's like a huge, you know, shocking spoiler, but at the same time, wow. um, it's such tension building towards the end. And you're, you, you kind of know deep down, but at the same time, the, 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 the moment where, you know, the, the father runs to the other family that just, you know, got back to the uh, apartment building and is about to take the elevator, about to get on the elevator. And the, you know, the father asks what, you know what happened and you know the once the truth is revealed it's just like i am i'm a wreck Uh, i'm just like i like from that moment on it's just
1: whew this when um did we did we uh say i forget now what the decalogue's premise is because um if we didn't i just wanted to maybe state that it's it's taking the 10 commandments and kind of uh telling these stories loosely loosely based on them um set in a uh in a in a polish uh, apartment complex um you know in uh i forget if it's in warsaw i can't remember what the city's but it's um they don't always neatly line up for some people i i you know as someone that i don't know what you if you had any kind of religious background i was raised catholic and as was uh, kaslavski and so you know I, I found that they matched up pretty well to how we remember the 10 commandments when i was a kid i you know agnostic now but like the uh i i i i didn't have any trouble matching them up with you know sometimes it seemed like a very loose interpretation of what the commandment was did you find yourself thinking about what the commandment was supposed to be in relation to the stories, or did you just follow n- the I next tried stories? not to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's
0: <laughs> it's one of those things too where I like I can't help but think about David Wayne's The Ten, where he literally <laughs> spells it out for you what each commandment is, and it's kind of funny in the ways that they do it. But um, you know, it's that's just like the ridiculous, subversive, c- comedic take on the Decalogue. And, you know, here, it's interesting to learn that, yeah, he like myself and like you, he was mm-hmm. raised Catholic. And then, uh, eventually later in life, I think even while he was making the Decalogue, he was agnostic as well. Um, yeah. And I think it was really, he just wanted to examine the fragility of faith and the flaws and imperfections of people and... You know th- their selfishness sometimes. I mean, thou shall not steal. Clearly, is kind of like a you know an interesting portrayal of conflicted narcissism and you know trying to de- decipher whether or not like I'm deserving of you know my own daughter essentially. Um, yeah, th- like that, a- that 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 segment is very interesting to me because like on one hand I wa- I I want to you know that's i almost feel like that's also the feeling i get with paris texas too where it's like yeah you, you that the son belongs with the mother but then again the son has built this relationship with sort of a you know surrogate family that he is more closely identified with and connected to so maybe that's actually what the son should have because that's what they're used to and that's you know where they sort of built their niche and but then at the same time shouldn't they be with the birth parents um so yeah Yeah. thou Shalt not steal is another interesting one but the first the first one is just like um i think it resonates to like i mean the idea of technology versus nature is just something that's never going to go away right um and yeah, I mean, that- even even if the technology in of itself is dated in this, but it doesn't matter. It's, it, it even made me think of my phone <laughs> while watching <laughs> it. Like, just like, yeah. okay, you know, I'm, I'm rely on this device more often than my own memory when it comes to like, okay, what was this thing? I, oh yeah, I can just look it up on my phone. Um, I'm sort of like, you know, not necessarily like, you know, worshiping it, but it's, it's certainly taken over, um, as, you know, like just something I go to on a regular basis. If I wanted to determine weather conditions, <laughs> yeah, I'd look it up on my phone or computer, um, as opposed to like, you know, trying to actually assess it outside. Um, but you know, that's yeah. just, that's, that's on a surface level, but I just think it's a beautifully told story that is beyond moving.
1: Did you know that he had, um, is it nine different DPs for the Decalogue that the, uh, it's funny because there's such a stylistic, I mean, the, the, the way the stories are told, I mean, there's, there's diversity in the stories themselves. Um, but in terms of the look of them, um, compared to, uh, three colors, which also has three different DPs and they're all quite strikingly different in appearance, um, Decalogue films look kind of... They they all have the same kind of visual grammar, I guess. Um, But uh, it's funny, because watching it again, I remember which ones I thought were my favorites um, in college. And I've actually bought the Decalogue a few times, because they were the first bootleg tapes I ever bought at a film convention, too. uh, Because you could get them um the like dubs of the pal tapes. So I it was actually something I bought a few times over the years. But and I'll buy it again whenever Criterion puts it out. But um, Oh
0: please, yeah. I would yeah. I would kill for I mean the first the first one is gorgeously shot.
1: Oh yeah. Well the um the Decalogue I think has a Blu-ray release this week maybe overseas. So I think the transfers exist whether or not they would use the same transfers or Create new ones, but it's it's already out overseas. So it, it's it's definitely likely to come out in America sooner rather than later, but I don't know when. Um, but interesting watching. I remember thinking, like you know, the uh, the tenth one felt kind of slight the first time I saw it, but watching it now, it's fun to watch it as a uh, as a cousin to White. Sure, uh, I, is, I can see that. So, well, it's the same two actors as playing brothers again, <laughs> right? Because it's it's yeah, it's like the uh, the punk rock singer is the is the brother, or is the uh, is the star right, of white. Right. And, um... yeah, I think I think that um, if if they become more widely available again, because I mean I think most of them are even on YouTube right now. Um, they are like um, because they're so you know, they're shorter than the average feature length them with like 55 minutes a piece generally. Um, They're like good bite-sized nuggets of perfectly crafted European art cinema. So if that's something that you just as a, as a viewer are attracted to it, you can, you can watch them. It You can, you can consume them the same way you can binge watch television now. So in a way it's almost kind of like a very forward thing. Like I wonder, you know, just like within this quote unquote golden age of television, if, there will be like if if any of the major auteurs would ever adopt this kind of strategy in terms of storytelling again. Because did I think you
0: it, know that this is being remade? I've heard that for years. Is it actually happening? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I don't have like the specific um, reference, but I'm, I'm I remember reading it f- within the past two weeks. I'll look it I read, up again.
1: Yeah, cuz I read that it was sold to HBO like a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but I never I I mean, I don't know. I've, I mean, I've, I also I've, I also heard they were remaking Kurosawa's was a with Tom Hanks at one point. I never saw that happen. I read they were making remaking Memento today too, but that's a whole other conversation. But um the uh Yeah, I am sorry to cut you off, but the uh I think the uh the idea of um you know, tour filmmakers that are having trouble getting the financing to make their feature films. Now, maybe this is something, uh, a, a, another form that, you know, some adventurous kind of uh, television executive might, uh, I don't know if they would give, you know, someone like Heinekir von Trier or Amadovar <laughs> carte blanche to make whatever they wanted. But, um, you know, I guess in a way, David Lynch returned to Twin Peaks with like his, current, um, uh, you know, revival of that show might be, I guess, closer, but, uh, you know, an art, an art film person telling a, uh, a mini miniseries, but. Well, yeah, like you
0: said, in this day and age, especially with like Netflix and Amazon, the, you know, they're, they're taking on this idea of like 10 episodes of something that you can binge watch. Yeah. Um, you know, a whole season's worth and stuff like Black Mirror is getting, um, you know, um, more recognition because of the the way people uh, receive um, their, their entertainment these days. And this would be something, I, I mean, I hate the idea, and this sort of just goes back to, you know, foreign cinema of like, oh, Americans don't want to read subtitles, so let's remake it. Um, but at the same time, I, I'd be curious to see this, you know, I don't know if... Like, the exact same stories have to be retold the way Kislowski did, like, you know, but maybe directors' interpretations of the commandments again? You know? Yeah. Like, that might be interesting to do um, an updating of the Decalogue and not, like, let's just remake, um, an, you know, an American version of Thou Shall Not Steal and have, you know... Brie Larson as the as the as, as the girl and um right. a younger actress or uh, you know, as as the daughter and stuff. But um my second favorite was expanded into a um a short film about love.
1: Right.
0: You know um that's number 6 I believe. Yep. And again I I mentioned this earlier the the voyeurism theme is prevalent, obviously. And it reminded me of Mansoor Ayer, oh, yeah. which uh, which is one of my favorite movies too. So, I mean, just the idea of, you know, some a, a shy introvert looking in on somebody across the way and becoming infatuated with her. Never happened to me, but at the same time, <laughs> I understand that idea of, being on the outside, looking in, and wanting to connect—that's yeah. um, that's something I think most people can relate to to some extent or another. Maybe not to the degree of being a peeping tom, um, but like you know, being inexperienced with romance and, and 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 sex to where it's like, oh, there's somebody who's got all the experience and clearly can give me you know what I what I want out of life and love. And just what happens as a result of all this, I mean, one could say, like, yeah, it's melodramatic, and, you know, what he eventually does is inevitable, and it's been done in other films subsequently, but um, it's it sort of has this pen, pendulum of viewer empathy, and it swings between her and him, and, you know, it, it just it really, God, it's one of those experiences, you know, early on when I knew I was going to start watching some of his films that just, like, it sits with me in a way that I, I would. I would, you know. At this point, I probably said this at least in three or four other episodes. But you can take a drink every time I use the word empathy on this podcast <laughs> because that is exactly why I go to the movies, why I love movies—to experience that. And this is one of those experiences. Like the whole decalogue really is just like uh, encapsulation of. Um, Viewer empathy at its like best.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I I don't know if um, if it's fair to think of Decalogue as as one film. Uh, I I do think of it as one film, even though it is a ten hour miniseries. Um, but I would say that for for people that are you know dipping their toe into the kislavsky filmography, if if the length doesn't scare you off, I think it's the most Perfect and, and accessible film, um, even even if the because you can watch it incrementally and you can watch it in little fifty five minute segments. I think that that is is the most um, you know taken as a whole is is maybe his his greatest work, but it's it's the most approachable too. If you you know it's it's not like you have to watch all ten hours. Um, you, you 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 get like a payoff and conclusion. You know every every hour of it. And it's yeah. not like uh, Out One or Berlin Alexanderplatz or uh, Satan Tango or any of the, like the real you know epic stories of, of you know art films. Like this is this is you know ten accessible, uh, interesting stories. That I mean, even if you don't think of them in in terms of how they relate to the the Ten Commandments, I mean they're just just really good films. Every single one of them is really good, and a um, short film about love. Um, has a slightly different ending than the decalogue Six version of it yeah i see um, I, I
0: watched just the short film version of it and didn't like with the you know short film about love and short film about killing i didn't watch the decalogue versions
1: the decalogue version um has a more it has a less romantic ending um you know um the 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 version uh i guess I guess the actress uh had some like wanted more of a fairy tale ending um for the the expanded uh feature version of that story and so the ending is a little bit um more kind of fanciful and more pointing towards the uh the metaphysical aspects of the later films like you know i i think the original ending is a little bit more uh it's a little more curt it's a little more uh hard ending but uh I don't know. Either version is great. Um, and it, it, ha- it, it falls in tradition of things like Rear Window and even parts of Blue Velvet, like the you know the the uh the the male voyeur uh, uh yeah blue velvet good call yeah mm-hmm. um the like the the,
0: the the sexually inexperienced with this yeah you know versus sexually experienced exactly and getting to see that yeah yeah
1: I mean. um but but not in a way that like leads to a, a thriller like rear window or blue velvet like it, it's if you just like that you find that like that metaphor compelling. I think it's it's, it's I do. Yeah. I, I mean
0: maybe there's something psychological about that, like, within me. But it's just something that and I do attribute it to like maybe seeing Hitchcock's films at an early age, maybe I'm part De Palma. Um <laughs> yeah. but it's just something that like I'm drawn to, not like, oh, I'm watching people through my telescope. Personally, but it's something in film that I'm drawn to, and I, I when that started at, it, when that started up in a short film about love, I'm like, well, I'm sold. Yeah,
1: here I go. I'm in. Well, it's funny cause it's, it's empathetic towards a character that I mean, I could understand people finding that character off-putting because he's you know pranking her and being kind of a pest. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: like he's and, and, the, and the film does not romanticize that behavior. Like it, it acknowledges that he's being an immature brat at times, but it's also yeah, you know, he is—he is sincere and obsessive, and I don't know. I think that there's something really kind of compelling about that story. But it's—it's it's, it, when you say short film about love, it's—you it, it, know—some are going to read that more as a, as a study, the study of a very damaged person. I—I um, I think it's really great, even in the uh, in in either version of it. Um, and I, I, I'm hoping that they can. I'm assuming they're going to include both that and the expanded short film about killing in whatever the uh, decalogue collection, whenever that comes out. I'm sure that'll be a big event for them. Whenever they do it, but
0: it is more like a short film about infatuation. I mean, it's it's interesting, like to call that love. Yeah, you know, like loving somebody from afar, like love at first sight. I mean, I, I guess I've experienced that. To some degree in my lifetime, where it's like, oh my god, I think I love that person based on hardly knowing them at all. But at the same time, realistically, um, you know, it's I'd be hard pressed to call what he experiences with her um, love, you know. And yeah.
1: that, I mean, maybe that's how he perceives it. Obviously, well, I mean, yeah, it's I mean, a lot of them are you know, you're dealing in irony, you're dealing with, you know, I mean... Oh, yeah. You know, uh, and that one actually probably, to my mind, has the the least convincing kind of connection to the commandment, because I think the Sixth Commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery, and there's no one married in that
0: film. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. You know, I hadn't thought of that. Like, what was the commandment? But that is...
1: Yeah, well, I that's mean, weird. Yeah, and I, and I, but I mean, he never states hmm. explicitly that that's the commandment. It's just that everything else, I think, matches up pretty neatly to the commandments. You know, in terms of the one through you know one through five, and then seven through ten. So you're stuck with that one. But it's I I don't know <laughs> I don't I mean I, I don't know what uh, he's how he's drawing that conclusion. But uh, yeah, it, it's. I mean the the deco- well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going
0: to get get out my Ouija board right now and uh see if I can summon the spirit of uh Kishlovsky and ask him. Well, no, it's not working. Anyway, on the, f- <laughs> on the on fl- the on the flip side <laughs> thou shalt not kill. Yeah. It's very obvious. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say something controversial here. Mm-hmm. Um I am not as crazy about this one. I I did appreciate it. I did especially like the first half of this. Yeah. Um. But again, like maybe, you know, like how I feel a little bit in a couple of moments in camera buff, it's just so pointed and, you know, what its thesis is, is very clear. But at the same time, there's no denying the fact that this was, you know, highly debated and actually made... Uh, an impact surrounding the issue of capital punishment in Poland, to where it almost has like this, you know, thin blue line kind of element where people saw this film and felt the need to make changes. Yeah. Um. So I mean, you know, at this sen- like even if I kind of have a couple of quibbles, um, maybe it- and it also I also attribute it to seeing Dead Man Walking, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. early on and kind of like you know having that same um, you know uh, automatic automatic response towards uh capital punishment um within our system here and just you know okay well that that's I'm I'm against it that's all there is to it um you know and you know Tim Robbins and Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon really covered that subject beautifully in that film um and here it's just a if it, like the first I was like, oh my god, Kieslowski, Whoa, like it's almost like that uh, German film uh, *Angst*. Yeah, where I- it's just like that. oh that the murder in this was just like so hard, so hard to watch, and so brutal, yeah. so intense. I always, and, I thought
1: of *Angst*, and I also thought of Henry a little bit too, the cult yeah, of a serial killer. But uh, absolutely, absolutely,
0: just like the randomness, the. The shocking brutality that takes place with this murder is something that I was not anticipating from this filmmaker, who is, you know, or an incredibly compassionate um, and just beautiful soul kind of a guy. And you know, here we have the the dark, the dark side of um, humanity at its ugliest. And then. You know, right from the moment like he um, you know meets up with his girlfriend and she asks him, "Where'd you get this car?" Yeah, we're all of a sudden in the courtroom and he's found guilty. Yeah. I I don't know how I felt about that that cut that automatic jump so quickly.
1: Well, I mean, it's 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 you know sending a clear message like this is not a film about the drama of the investigation and capture of the murderer. Sure, it's sure. just about. It's just about killing.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I understand that completely. I was just like, it was so jarring for me and so unexpected. Yeah. Not that like I found it bad. It was just like I'm not. I'm. That's just not at all.
1: Oh, it's a. It's a. It's a totally bold decision. I mean, it, it catches you off guard. I mean, that it's. I don't know. It's funny. That the contrast in that. In in the way that the the murders take place, because both are presented as murders, um, but yeah. one one is by chance and one is deliberated over. One is in nature, one is in a sterile institution. I mean, they're contrasted in real uh, clear cut ways. It's that's maybe one of the first ones where he he has a partnership with a DP who encourages him to push. Uh, push the style, like the visual language push the color palette uh, oh yeah forth. there's a gr-
0: there's a green filter and
1: it it sort of looks depraved and it, yeah. cold well it's funny because um you know we're talking about the visual style of koslovsky and he's someone that is very much influenced by his director of photography in these matters like he it's it's important to not undervalue you know, his, his technical collaborators. And, and th- this is the first instance where he starts using color in an expressionistic kind of way. And then that, I mean, he goes way further with it, like after Decalogue, but um, yeah, it, it, cause it makes it, it's, it, it's a very ugly looking film, but by design in a way. Um, and he's yeah. not,
0: and he's not asking for sympathy from the victim too, because like, you know, early on it shows the victim, like, Kind of as a not a pedophile, but just like a a, a creep. Uh, yeah, you know, he's leering he's not, after young girls. And, yeah, you know.
1: he's not a saintly innocent that is killed, and you know you almost feel like some degree of empathy for the murderer because you know he's awkward in the way that you know we all feel awkward at times. You know, it's it's not it's not so easy. Um, but at the same time, you know, the murder is so barbaric that you know. He, he, you, you don't I mean it does it does cause you to ask those questions depending on what your feeling is on capital punishment or not I mean um I, I don't know but the thing is that that film is the most uh, the most propaganda uh, of all of the Koslowski films you know? yeah and, that's
0: exactly what I was thinking I mean it's just like, okay, this is I mean it was such an fierce opposition to the death penalty bluntly stated. Um, that I almost felt like I was getting hit, hit in the head with a bullpen hammer, but at the same time I was like, I agree. Um, so I mean, I understand his stance. Yeah, you know, I mean, I just I, I was torn by it. I didn't I didn't dislike it. I just didn't necessarily like this. There was very little subtlety to be found here, and yeah. you know, this coming from a director who. I think is, you know, capable of subtlety. Subtlety to the
1: point of ambiguity and mysteriousness or even obscurity for some Yeah. 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 It's, it's the one that feels like what, if you like it, what's good about it is totally different from all the other Koslowski films because it's, it's not visually attractive and it's really blunt and direct in what it's trying to say in a way that, I mean, if you look into interpretations of the Three Colors trilogy or or uh, the double F Veronique, I mean, there are countless pages devoted to you know picking those things apart and finding all sorts of symbolic meanings. There's there's not a lot to pick apart with short film about killing. It's just it's it's very it's very much like something like you know a Haneke film. You know, if if maybe even more blunt. Um, yeah. than something like Funny Games or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean it's it it has its place and it's interesting. I think that for me, I'm also so jaded by horror films that I don't. I, I'm not. I, I that the murders are are horrific and powerful, but they don't have me like you know scrambling under my chair the way unsuspecting film festival audiences would have reacted to it in 1988. Um, like it doesn't. It, it doesn't like overpower me the way a more extreme film would. In, in And I guess that for the time it was an extreme film for that audience, but um, I don't know. So you just have to take it then as this kind of uh very messagey kind of film surrounded by films that are a little bit more poetic and ambiguous. And so it does kind of stand apart from the rest of the Decalogue.
0: Yeah. I find it silly that it's taken us this long to use the word poetic to describe his work because like that's that's one of the first things yeah I, it's just it's just like yeah meditative existential poetic all those apply but at the same time like the majority of the decalogue you know they they, they are very simple stories about very complex people you know yeah. that they, they present themselves in a way that is like the antithesis of something like double life of veronique where you know it's you got mostly point A to point B to point C, but right. never in a way that I find um, preachy until the, until killing. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what rubbed me the wrong way, despite admiring it. And you know, clearly there's incredible filmmaking on display, and you know I agree with his stance. I think it's just I um, I've grown like I understand at the time, like, if I'm going to reframe it again, at the time, I bet this was a profoundly important film, and something that people were not used to seeing or experiencing, or had thought about, really, until
1: Kozlowski brought up these issues. Yeah, I think if it caused people to reconsider the death penalty, um, then the impact, you know, I mean, it, it has a positive social impact in a way that some of the more poetic and you know, uh, abstract Keslowski films don't have. I mean, it, it, it depends on like how, where you come down on, like, does it need to be art if it's, if it's making the world better in a, in a, in a less, uh, intellectual way. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think if you get used to Keslowski as someone making films that, you know, ask these bigger questions and give a lot to kind of ponder and dream the, uh, Film about killing just feels kind of um, less interesting, but it's really well made, and it, it had it had you know I, I guess it, it kind of met you know its goals and what it was trying to do. It's just it's it's working on a different level than the rest of the films, um, right? I
0: mean, I, I, if somebody were to ask me, would you put a short film about killing in in a, you know a canon of great films? I'd probably say no. But obviously, the entire decalogue yes is a resounding yes it's a yeah you know a work of art a masterpiece in of itself the whole you know all 10 films have a special now is the the decalogue version of this film shorter
1: yes and i'm a little foggy on what the differences are because i I hadn't revisited decalogue five for this i just watched the short film about killing but i had seen decalogue five in the theater and i'm really kind of drawn a blank on like what it, they added to it so i i apologize i should have prepared that but uh that's okay well yeah. there's so there's only so
0: much we can cover and retain in terms of like the, the entire filmography
1: including the decalogue there it's, it's just it's fu- so yeah.
0: hard to it's it's,
1: it's funny because that in, in a way proved to be one of his major breakthrough films and it's the least interesting chapter of the decalogue <laughs> for me um i mean it's you know but um it's the most obvious which is kind of like to, down
0: to the thou shalt not kill you know commandment and the representation of it um yeah. is just like okay i mean you know the, thou shalt not commit adultery is a little bit looser and you know that's uh number 3 i believe um which In, is
1: adulter- adultery is is uh short about love Oh! Um, oh! Okay. You're you're. Th- uh, oh, that's uh, yeah. I'm thinking of Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, which is awfully similar to my mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's uh, that's that's Decalogue nine, and that was actually supposed to be expanded uh, to a short film about jealousy. I think is the I think is the title.
0: Oh wow! Um,
1: but that's the one again. Voyeurism. Yep, uh, yep. Plays into that one also. Um. I thought that was. I mean, they're all they're all interesting films, I and mean, we could we could hash over the decalogue for a quite bit longer. But I wanted to uh, to move on, unless we you have other things to say about decalogue. I would like to move on to the double life of Verne. Yeah, we kind of
0: have to at this point. And like I said, if we do a part two, um, expect us to expand upon the decalogue and blind chance because it's like. There's there's so much more you can you can talk about and you know there's only so much we can cover because it's yeah it's
1: you know we could certainly do a seven hour podcast but um I mean we didn't even get onto Decalogue three or Decalogue four really and I think those are better than most films I've seen this year <laughs> like, yeah. mean, like just these like little one hour. Uh, stories, like, they're just so perfect. But
0: Yeah, I, I also like Thou Shalt Not Steal. I mean, Decalogue, Decalogue oh, 3 yeah. is really, it's a nice Christmas story too.
1: Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's, and again, like that one, I think the commandment it's addressing is uh, keep holy the Sabbath day, but it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's almost arbitrary in <laughs> the relationship.
0: Yeah. No, that's uh, true. But it's,
1: yeah, and uh, but so, so as, as communism was falling apart in, in, in Poland, and thank Christ. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that he saw, he saw an opportunity to expand things, you know, and, uh, I think expand both the, um, what he was trying to cover in terms of the ideas, but also the audience. And, you know, it reached that international market, uh, beyond Poland. And I think that, uh, the double F Veronique. I forget how his name is said. Is it, um, uh, Christoph, uh, Piserix, I think is name. I, I can't remember, but the, there was a lawyer that he met while researching. Uh, no end. That yeah. is the co-writer for all of these films we're talking about from, uh, I think from no end, Decalogue, Veronique, and I want to say three colors. Um, but he, he, he had the one consistent co-writer. Yep. Um, And, uh, so they did, uh, the Double Life of Veronique, which was like, I think a $2 million grossing hit for Miramax at the time, which is pretty good for a film of that type at at that time. And, uh, so had you seen this before? Um, yes, I have. Um, shortly after
0: I, um, fell in love with, um, Irene. (laughs) how can you not i mean it's just like oh yeah that 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 face was made for the camera um and like when i when i saw red it was like every, every single element of that movie i fell in love with um start you know starting from that opening shot her face the cinematography the music the the voyeuristic aspect of it like you know red is like we'll get to it but it's it's the best of all worlds so eventually i found myself going back to veronique and renting it and uh was completely transfixed by it um my review of it now would be like imagine if enemy was doused in melancholy um <laughs> that's a connection i did not think to make but you're uh, right it is um, but yeah it's, it's 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 gorgeous i um I watched this on Blu-ray for the yeah. first time and I was like, I want every, I want to just put every single frame of this movie on my wall and cover up my wallpaper um, with with this movie. I just, I love every single shot of this movie. The cinematographer, Zlawmir Eisdiek, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously he, he, he shot some of the Decalogue and um, right, maybe the first one, Shoot maybe the first one. Did he shoot red also? I that? think so. Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, it's it's just crazy cuz like you can almost call uh, Veronique Green because there's so much green throughout this movie. And I don't know if it represents anything per se. It's just really highly stylized.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's I mean it's definitely the uh, the quantum leap forward in terms of visual stylization after Everything that precedes it. I mean, this this points the way. This you know the points the way towards you know the three colors for sure. But I think I might even. Pref- I don't know if I prefer. It's it's the one that's probably trickiest to talk about because the plot is so strange. Uh-huh. Um, beyond beyond just the fact that it's about two women uh, who are physically identical. Uh, in two different countries, and have some kind of unspoken link. Um, I, I don't know how how to really s- sum this up without you know spoiling it or just making it sound a lot more uh, conventional than it is. Because um, it, it is the most beautiful Kraslowski film, and maybe one of the most beautiful films period. Um, i I'm, I'm trying to think what. I mean in terms of just the music and images and how every scene plays out in this kind of dreamlike fashion, but not dreamlike in a, um, like the nightmare dream logic of something like, you know, a David Lynch or you know, even Bergman or, you know, some of the artier, uh, Altman. Like, it's not like, um, I'm trying to what you would even compare it to. I mean, but it, it's, cause it's not quite like, um, like it, it, it's 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 more dreamy than the uh, the three colors, but uh, dreamy in that like events play out realistically, but you think about them and put them down on paper. It's like wait, why is she gotta, you know, w- w- why she she's she's going to visit this man because of these recordings? Like you you know, you think about like the character motivations and their yeah, you got you got you got to forego logic. Exactly, like it, it. It just things play out in a way that if you step outside and question character motivation, you might find it a very frustrating film. And some people think the film is ridiculous. I mean, for everyone that thinks it. I mean, I think most critical re- response to it is very positive, but in a way that's hard to explain because if you just map it out on paper, it it, it can collapse. Um, yeah, I can see
0: people looking at like the puppet stuff and rolling their eyes and finding it ridiculous and you know maybe 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 this can be labeled as too surreal but it speaks to me in a way that i again it's 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 almost like you know, how i feel kind of it's it's not in the same ballpark and it's certainly not thematically the same but how i feel about punch drunk love is almost very similar to how i feel about double life of ronique and that i'm like so moved by it visually and just you know s- like little subtle gestures or little certain moments or one sentence of dialogue can just wreck me. And I don't even know why, like, like when she, you know, finally looks at the photo of the woman she took a picture of and starts crying. I feel moved by that. And I, logically, I don't know why she's crying about it. Um, I think, I think maybe she just like feels a certain sadness and loneliness. um, even yeah. though she recognizes you, the fact that
1: maybe there's another self out there, um, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, that scene reminds me of the uh, moment when they're crying in the Silencio Club. Exactly. In yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. That's and that's. It's so weird
0: that like I think the first time I saw this and the first time I saw Mahal Drive, I wasn't moved one iota. And then like the second and third times I've seen both of those movies, I'm like a mess. And it's it's so hard to know specifically why it's just there's something about a movie that can just move me visually, Um, you know. There's like reflections refracting and faces distorting and like there's a random moment in this where a guy flashes his genitals. Um, Like there's (laughs) just it's just a weird movie that somehow invades me. Um, It feels like a lucid dream, Um, and. I understand some like the feeling um, that is created in this movie. It, it, you know, I mean, Kieslowski, like he really got to the complexity of the human soul and sort of asked really deep questions about the meaning of life, especially in something like the Decalogue that is worthy of like you know something like Dostoevsky or Albert Camus or you know some of like the great authors of our time could probably find. I mean, it wasn't like Kubrick never gave a quote to anything. Right, like Kubrick never offered like, oh, I love this or I love that to hardly anything throughout his yeah. lifetime. But then he saw the Decalogue, and he, you know, and he was like, "Holy yeah. shit, this is mind blowing cinema." Um, I
1: wanted to um, just before I forget, I wanted to correct a mistake I made. Um, the DP who shot this shot blue, not red. Oh, okay. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's funny. Just to uh, bring back the. Um, Keslowski as a political filmmaker. This actually has uh, is it the Veronica, Veronica character um, right? Because uh, the po- the Polish uh, the Polish girl uh, comes upon uh, protests and oh, uh, right. sites of violence. But but she's walking away from it just the way. And it's you know you can you can say kind of pretty on the nose way. And Keslowski is also walking away from all of the political. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, messiness of Poland at this point. He's on to other things, more introspective things now. Um, He's really
0: tapping into emotions more than ever. And yet it's not really clear, you know, it's not one of those things where, again, you know, how I mentioned with the Declog, point A to point B to point C there, I I couldn't tell you how this all ties together. And, you know, certain, certain moments, what does that mean specifically? But like, you know, when, um, when she's singing, I am moved, um, you know, and l- there's just the fact that, you know, obviously I'm, I'm hoping most people you know, have seen this by now, but maybe if you haven't to skip ahead a little bit, but you know, Veronica dies and I, I wonder if that just like, you know, haunts Veronique. And that's kind of what she's carrying around with her, too. And that's kind of why she cries. Like, I'm just... I don't necessarily know if you can parse meaning in that way. Like, you can say, well, this is why this is happening. And that's why... Because it's not that type of movie at the same time.
1: Yeah, I... There's a critic... In one of the books I have, Richard Armstrong. And what he said about this film... I didn't want to, like, take credit for his idea. But I thought it was interesting, was... Um, we are connected and learn from each other, even, uh, in our fragmented collective experience. So that Hmm. the idea of like the two, like Veronique learns to not sing herself to death the way Veronica did. Just, she's learned something just by this other person experiencing it. Um, I forget if they do they comment on it in the dialogue. Like one person burns their hand, another person then knows not to. Yeah, touch heat. Like it's 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 tackling this very uh, you know hazy kind of idea of you know learning from your neighbor, even uh, even if you're not like vis- viscerally like experiencing it with them, you're you're indirectly like we're all collectively tied together so we're sharing experiences in in a in a uh, i'm not tr- tr- sure how to put it into words i i don't know that that's i mean that's the trick about talking about this film because it's
0: i, thought, I think it defies it, that that's what i love about it too it's like it's not yeah. something you can i mean i'm sure papers have been written about this movie i, I don't doubt oh, that sure. I, I wouldn't i wouldn't mind reading them but it's just like you know, to, to sum it up in even just a half hour or something is really, really challenging. And I kind of didn't want to like, you know, write down bullet points for this movie. I just wanted to like say, let right. it flow, let it come out of you, let it be a geyser, you know, or something. But it just it it, it is something kind of distinctive and personal um, to where I'm like, I don't know. As I'm wa- even as I'm watching, I'm like, I don't know if I can talk about this movie on the podcast because it's just like. It's it's, right. it's such a well, singular emotional experience for me that I can't replicate into words.
1: Yeah, well I was thinking about that earlier today just um how we were going to be talking about films like The Double Life Véronique and Blue and how these these films are so packed with beautifully rendered scenes that how they all add up is such, you know, food for, you know, all, endless speculation as to what things mean. Like endless, you know, there, there are books I have, there's interpretation. And, and it's so personal sometimes that I was thinking like, like is the answer to, like you said, like make a bulleted list. Like do we, do we try to solve the mysteries of these films or is it better for the viewer to to find their own meanings in them? I mean, I don't think of them as challenging films in in that um, you ever lost within the scenes, how they all add up is very subjective. And yeah. I think that it's, you know, I, I, there was a reason this became an international success. It's a very pleasurable thing to, to dip into. It's not, it's, it's challenging when you try to sum up what it all is supposed to mean. Um, and, but I, I, maybe you catch something in your heart as you're watching it that it feels correct or maybe it does I'm not I know a few people this is their favorite film of year I've never really had a conversation as to what you know what people are uh, uh, other people are getting from it so it's it makes it tricky, yeah, to, to discuss it. Unfortunately, I feel, reminds me of talking about Tarkovsky with Patrick. It's just like, well, I mean, we know we know it's art.
0: It's it's beautiful art. <laughs> it's like one of those things, like you know, you go to an art museum, you see a painting, and you just look at it and absorb it. And do you talk about why you love it? I don't know. Um, and that's kind of de- defeating the purpose of having a movie podcast where you're talking about why you love something or why something doesn't work. But at the same time. I also want to leave it up to the listener to go see a very important beautiful movie and then fill in the gaps and you know experience it yourself fill in the palette of you know because you're probably going to have a different experience. I could see somebody being completely bored and stifled and kind of perplexed. There it's it's very really? possible to watch The Double Life of Veronique and just not connect with it whatsoever. There's a couple of reviews on Letterboxd I saw where it was just like I feel like a philistine because I did not get this movie, um,
1: and certainly that's possible. Yeah, well, I think that when you're in a very like flat kind of way, when you're dealing with like a story of doppelgangers, like Enemy or the you know was it the one I loved or there's one other one that the, came out the double du- the double the double right. You expect certain things to pay to pay off in a way that this film deliberately. Sidesteps that entire all the all the melodrama you think you're going to get from a story about two women that are identical. The film does not engage in that uh, hardly at all.
0: I know um, and it's crazy because, like you know, when the guy is talking to her over coffee, that conversation is frustrating because you want him to come out and you know say certain things that he doesn't say, and then like at the at, at the moment where. Um, you know, she does finally see her, um, her, I guess her neck, her collection of negatives and the picture that she took of, um, of Veronica. I'm, I'm watching that going, how could she not have seen that before? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, how could she have just never noticed that? Like she, you know, took a picture of her, you know, Identical twin practically, and not have responded to that until that moment, right? You know, yeah. There's
1: there's like almost two completely different types of movie you could make out of this premise, and people that love Double Life Journey for what it is, probably in a very different camp than the people that are frustrated by the lack of you know the the, the, the expected payoffs of a film about doppelgangers. So, um, could
0: you can maybe like you know in the same way that we you know, talked about how a short film about love could almost be like a, a blue velvet, do you think that this is kind of like Kieslowski's
1: Mulholland Drive in a way? I I mean, I... You know, I don't think of it that way because Mulholland Drive... I don't think of Mulholland Drive as a story of doppelgangers, really. Yeah, I, I, I mean, mean more, but more, more like a puzzle, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is a puzzle, but, like, Mulholland Drive can be... I, f- I feel like Mulholland Drive can be explained away a lot easier than... Um, maybe its reputation, because I, that, that, that gets into a side conversation about what that film is about. But I mean, you could make that to be a uh, you know the the fantasy of a woman that is you know a uh, you know kind of a destroyed Hollywood actress that had an obsession with a woman. Like you 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 can break down Mahal drive in a way that makes kind of a loosely rational concept. Doublet Vernique, it it only can exist as a fantasy, but it's like a fantasy like, you know, without any, um, like, supernatural things are not occurring in a real ostentatious way. It's just, it's 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 beautifully rendered, but realist. It's just the entire concept is so strange.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But it's not, it doesn't rub your face in its strangeness. It's just, it's just beautifully strange. Yeah, that's my jam,
0: beautifully strange. That's probably, like... My thoughts about Punch Drunk Love because, like, I don't know people who are, like, you know, in, you know, incredibly moved by that movie. I'm, like, moved almost the entire time watching that. Like, yeah. there's, you know, a scene where he's yelling on the phone and all of a sudden uh, the, the the phone light comes on. And I just find that so moving and I can't, like, I couldn't tell you exactly why. Yeah. I just do. I find it beautiful and moving.
1: Yeah, well, it's beautiful in ways that are hard to articulate, and that's pretty much Double End of Veronique in a nutshell. If it works for you, it's 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 for ways that like language is a tricky thing <laughs> to bring into it. I think, and, and, and Punch Drunk Love, I think you know the part of the reason it has detractors is because it goes so against what certain viewers' expectations are because of the casting of Adam Sandler. I think with with this, it's again like expectations uh, are not. When expectations are not met with like that kind of story, I think that's where some of it comes to, and it, it just it just it go it meanders down its own very peculiar path, and 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 realistic human behavior is not part of the plan,
0: <laughs> which is fine by me. I mean, like maybe on a, also a very surface level, you know, early on in this film, there is a huge response to the transformative power. Of music and singing, which is yeah. automatically going to resonate with me, uh, being a, yeah. being a musician. So I mean, like I, you know, I'm not the biggest opera guy in the world, but at the same time, there you, you cannot be, you know, you you can't be indifferent to somebody being really passionate about what they're, you know, about their about their passion. And so when yeah. you see that taking place, and then you see the results of why you know she basically dies, it's 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 really. It's tragic.
1: Um, it's it's actually funny that it's kind of ironic. At, <laughs> it's hinted at in Decalogue Nine too. That whole notion of someone yeah. who's a great singer, but the uh, the dangers of being a singer, I guess, was something that was on Kraslavsky's mind. So I then, think but. to
0: sum it all up, each each person could probably put together their own theory and connections about the double life of Ronique. I mean, it's very possible that you could watch it and not be into it and not be moved by it um i just it's in the upper tier it's it's so close to being my favorite um i think at this point though it's obvious what my favorite is and we're going to get to it very soon but um but um i mean it's 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 phenomenal and watching you got to watch this thing on blu ray it's beautiful
1: Yeah, I need to pick it up on Blu-ray. I only have the DVD. But uh, speaking of music uh, and uh, mysterious kind of uh, open-to-interpretation films, so do you want to tackle Blue? Oh, boy. One of the best movies about
0: grief. Um, I uh, I mean, this, this was my first experience with him, and boy, oh, boy, what a doozy. <laughs> like, um, I mean, I remember first... Being a little restless when I first saw this because I, I mean I wasn't in tune with foreign cinema at the time and I wasn't prepared for kind of the languid pace and what he was trying to capture with the experience of um, of a woman dealing with the loss of her husband and child. But um, I mean, it's it's all set up so beautifully in the opening, and you know, this is the first, obviously, where you're seeing a lot of you know blue representation throughout the film
1: and yeah and this is this is arguably the most visually impressive of all of his films i I mean you can make an argument for red i guess but uh visual pyrotechnics i mean considering like the the realist style of the post you know of the documentaries and things like camera buff it's like it almost feels like another director in terms of the visual language of it but then it's you know, the, the, you know, the philosophical concern. I mean, it's still kislovsky, but it's, it's so flashy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah. I mean, you know, and, and he sets up things so well visually. He's, that's one thing I have to say that uh, clicks with me the most about kislovsky is, is he, he is a premier filmmaker in the art of showing, not telling. He will yeah. show you something and you have to piece it together in your mind. Um, not every character is going to come out and say what's going to happen next or what they're feeling or processing. Um, he's he's showing it visually. He's showing it through you know uh, body language and facial expression. Or in this case, at the beginning of Blue, you're seeing um, you know a faulty uh, mechanical issue with the car, and that sort of foreshadows exactly what's going to happen. Um, and you know again like i think the opening scenes of all the films in the trilogy also present flawed technology in a way like i mean maybe why i'm kind of stretching it a little bit with like uh, you know the 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 big trunk traveling on a conveyor belt but um you,
1: well no i mean if you think about even uh just i forget if it was uh Dennis Lim's visual essay on on red or or where it was but the uh Kasaski and technology even so much as the telephone yeah um, oh, it's yeah. not it's it's not it's not a a, a, a harmonious <laughs> relationship he has with it I mean's there's so many news. telephone
0: <laughs> conversations in all of these movies, so many connections yeah. and disconnections and
1: miscommunications um, yeah do we want to get into what the the three colors represent as far as like the uh, the French Revolution and and blue, white, and red what they're supposed to mean symbolically? Yeah. Do you know, blue yeah,
0: bl- blue is liberty, white yeah. white is equality and red is fraternity.
1: I almost feel like I'm in class and I had yeah. <laughs> Well, cuz I mean, I, cuz you know, I've I've heard, you know, I don't think I knew that that's what I was supposed to be looking for when I first saw blue and I don't know how necessary it is to have that extra you know layer of meaning is you, know, you know what when we say um Liberty is the theme of Blue. I mean, it's an ironic uh, depiction of liberty because it's you know it's it's her free of you know responsibility, uh, but it's it,
0: what a she, cost. she can't like it's, she can't it's, es- it's, but she can't escape it at the same time. Like right. you know, it's showcase. This movie showcases a person who almost needs to. And wants to shut down and avoid people, but is constantly forced to deal with the outside world. And I think that right. I think that that's that's the case for most people experiencing intense grief. I remember experiencing after the loss of my dad, where it was like, God, I just I, I want to stay in and process things, and you know, almost shut down and watch movies and relax and decompress and deal with my depression. But I do have to go to work. I do have to interact. I have to you know meet up with my girlfriend. I have to do things even if everything in my body and mind are telling me, "Don't." And I think that's, that's kind of what this movie showcases. She needs to, you know, um, move on and also work with the compositions and do all these things, even if deep down, she is like in a state where she shouldn't, in a way.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's funny because that character, and this is something a few essays i read kind of remark on, is you, you're given this person that everyone's going to feel sympathy for on some level because she's experienced a tragic loss, but then her grief makes her such a a cold, expressionless character that she becomes a very tricky point of identification for the viewer. Um, That's true. That's definitely true. I think I think that... that I think that plus the languid pacing and all of these moments that are kind of ambiguous in terms of what they all supposed to mean as far as like the, the various episodes, um, I, I could, I'm not going to start listing them all off, but it has a lot of digressions that don't seem to connect with the larger story of this woman, uh, grieving the loss of her, uh, husband and child. And then also, um, you know, is she, is she going to, is she the the composer of these pieces that her husband is recognized for? And will she finish the work herself or she's trying to destroy it? Like, but there's all these, these side, sidebar kind of s- scenes like, uh, you know, with an exotic dancer or with like a, someone fleeing, you know, uh, a, a fight, you know, in her building, like, you know, and I don't know. I mean, some things are like obvious symbolically, like, um, family of uh was it rats uh oh, yeah. and, and then you know she she uh she has them killed uh and you know you you, the, you know what you're meant to impl- you know take from that is like you know uh, symbolic of a family and she can't have any kind of family in the house <laughs> you know? but like uh i don't know i mean it's a, it's a kind of film where you can look for symbolic meaning in every shot of a coffee cup, you know, if you want, and people do, I mean, there are, there are books that are essays. And so I, I, you know, when talking about a film like the same as Veronique, it's like, at what point do you stop breaking down everything when talking about it? Um, it's, it's a really, I know you beautiful- don't want to take, you
0: don't want to take away from the magic. You don't want to take away. You don't want, you don't want people to walk in. That's the thing too, is like, I worry about like almost the inception factor when you're watching a movie, like, like, it's like reading a review before you see the movie too. Um, right. you know, because like then you go in thinking this certain thing that maybe a critic or a friend told you about, and you're going in there like, Oh, there's a twist ending. Don't forget. And you know, like, and then that's already impl- implanted in your head and you're already anticipating it. So there's like certain things within certain movies that, oh, I don't necessarily want to talk about this because I don't want to necessarily take away from the uh, experience of discovering it on their own. But we have a podcast where we need to talk, and I'm excited to because I love all these movies.
1: Well, Uh, I would say of the three colors trilogy, Blue is the one that most feels like the uh, cinematic equivalent of listening to like a sad ballad. <laughs> like, it, it's, it, it's the one, it's like the, it, it it's concentrated, like sustained melancholy, and it's eye candy, and you can, you can deconstruct it all day long, and find real clever ideas, and visual rhymes, and, Oh God, yes. even things politically being expressed, in terms of like, you know, the reunification of Europe, is the thing that the late husband, it was supposed to be scoring, you know, and reunification, I mean, is, you know implicitly being addressed in like how it's all going to be resolved um, it's it's funny to think of this being an international hit because it's such a, a uh, it's an inward looking solemn kind of film quite beautiful and I mean, this is really what launched Juliette Binoche even more so than Unbearable um, Lightness of Being or you know uh, Lovers on the Bridge or any of the things that she had been doing before this I mean that's I mean this is what points the way towards English patient and chocolate and all the things. I mean she's one of the most famous living French actresses but it I mean this is really where Juliette Binoche becomes a major star um and it's such a uh, rightfully so. Yeah, but it's a it's such a it, it's not like the most conventionally appealing character she's played uh, by a long shot and uh Well, it's also incredible I think of
0: Kizlowski to have such strong female protagonists. Um, yeah. They're multi-dimensional. They're intriguing. They're very complex. They're not always likable, especially in white, obviously. Right. Um, but I mean, here I I just think it's just a, a really g- intense de- depiction of grief and what it's like to mourn. Um, and and you know I, th- I I just I think I think you know people are sophisticated enough to pick up on certain things. I mean it's it is it is slower. It is you know kind of. Um, uh, it, it creates this own landscape of emotion, and you know you mentioned certain digressions; they don't necessarily feel out of place. And a lot of times, he, he does like fade out to sort of yeah. create this disconnect that probably she's experiencing in a way. Um, and I, I don't know; it's 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 a really it's a really special movie. There's there's those mirror reflections and The flashes of blue and I, I guess the the, the fade yeah. out the fade outs are more like sudden blackouts. I should say.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I think I think Kieslowski addresses that in something I read. I think it's supposed to be like time standing still. Oh, uh, okay, okay. But I mean, but it's ambiguous. Like, don't if if you know if if someone hears me say that and then watches blue, like, oh, that's what that means. Like, maybe not. Like, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a very jarring thing every time that it happens because sure. because the music is loud on the soundtrack and things just stop and it's a very like it's a very disconcerting effect every time it happens and very self conscious in a way that might take you out of the film or make you aware of the filmmaker um it's like an inherently an experimental um you know move but uh i mean th- th- this has got so many scenes that are just so i mean just visually striking that yeah. if you just watch it with the sound off i mean you're still going to get just aesthetic pleasure from the film um i so it's i don't know i mean i i i knew people that, that this was their favorite of the three colors i i mean you only seem to ever meet people that prefer blue or red uh I I dated a girl I, that liked white the best, but she's the only person I've ever met that liked
0: white the best. No, 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 no. Like the majority of podcasts um, that I just like looked up. You know, I don't. I didn't listen to them all. I don't like doing that necessarily. I don't like. I usually like listen to f- ten or fifteen minutes just to see what they initially think, but not go too deep into them because mm-hmm. I don't. I, I always have this fear of plagiarizing um, right. subconsciously sometimes and. I found, like, two or three, uh, you know, podcasts on Kislovsky they were saying White is their favorite, or it's like, really? it's like the underrated one, and I'm like, hmm. It is the underrated one. Yeah. I would say it's the underrated one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I, I would agree. It's just, I guess it doesn't have the same impact. It does, it feels like his Billy Wilder sort of comedy, necessarily. Not, I mean, like, it does have some darkness to it, of course, but. Sure. But, um, I mean, like, Blue, to me, is really, you know... I, God, I can't imagine being in, in France and watching a movie about grief right now. Um and, you know, experiencing yeah. this and it, it it sort of becomes like this it's its own existential trap in a way where you 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 do become like you're you do become a ghost temporarily, um where to process that kind of pain is one of the most difficult things to walk around with and you feel um it's like Carnival of Souls. You feel, right. you feel like you're walking around um, and, you know, you're invisible. Nobody gets you. And, uh, you know, grief is very much like depression in that way where it's, you know, you, you just feel very cut off from from the rest of the world while everybody else is sort of smiling and experiencing their lives. Um, and I think this movie captures that. And at the same time, you know, she connects very strongly, again, to, you know, the, the, the words of the, the hymn composed by her dead husband, uh, and that 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 uh, that becomes a, a sort of a turning point too, and I really, really respond to that. And this is this is another just great uh, example of what Kislovsky does best. And you know, this time again, we have a really f- incredible female protagonist, and Julia Pinocha is just—I don't know. This might be I don't, this might be my favorite performance of hers. I think, I think. Yeah, that's 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 yeah, a I mean, tough I, that's a,
1: that's a tough call. I mean, yeah. She's one of the great, great million actors working today I, I but it's definitely one of the uh it's definitely one of my favorite things koslovsky ever did um and uh yeah it it's funny cause, um for a film that is constantly reveling in melancholy it i don't find it to be a heartbreaking or sad film the way um certainly decalogue one is because it, it because you're you're right off the almost yeah. right from the beginning into the grief like you are you're observing her grief from the outside like you you don't have knowledge of those characters that have been killed in a way that makes you miss them mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you're 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 observing empathetically this woman that is so shut down um uh, that she you know you know at one point is suicidal early on and uh you know even, even you know, engaging in in, in sexuality, like, it, it, it and again, this kind of calls back to no end, also, but like sexuality, it's like this doesn't change anything. Like the, the, the yep. longing is still in. It, 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 nothing changes, you know, um, after the, that act. Um, I, and you and you expect it to be, I mean, in, maybe in a Hollywood version of it, like her falling in love with someone else would replace the the, the, the lost husband, and that's not how this works Um, it's 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 a fascinating film I I, it's like Veronique again it's like the more you talk about like the more you worry about like spoiling mysteries or you know the things the 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 ambiguities that make it kind of a powerful or mysterious um, you know uh, personal experience for for people but um, it's funny then to to go to white which is kind of a, a, a I mean, it's you know, it's a black comedy, and it, it, w- this one is dealing with equality. And so, when when I tell you that, what what do you think he means by that?
0: That's an interesting
1: question, because um, there's two distinct yeah. popular theories for that, and they're both you know, they're both probably valid. Well, I mean, what's strange
0: to me. You know, I like I I I don't know if uh, people would agree with this at all and it's I don't know if it's a popular opinion but I think I think they get better as they go along. Mm-hmm. Um I mean I I obviously love blue and white upon a rewatch keeps getting better. Oh yeah. Um it's a subversive comedy and it really wasn't until like I you know did a little research and kind of now it seems obvious that it can be seen as a greater metaphor for the relations between Poland and the West. Right. Um, you know, and just, I mean, obviously I didn't pick up on that when I first saw it when I was younger, you know, but the, just now it seems very obvious to me when equating something like an erection with power and, you know, <laughs> the fact that he can't get it up yeah. in France means something. Sure. Um, I, you know, and just the fact that she rejects him because that really pisses me off. But I understand that's that's possible. I mean, there, the you know, not to get too personal, but there was one time where that happened to me, and the uh, you know, the the person I was with didn't have the the most uh, sympathetic response, and I was really shocked and taken aback by that. Yeah, and I think um, you know, I think that 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 is an indication of this relationship. Uh, Being incredibly unfulfilling, but at the same time he still loves her, and then at the same time he uh, plots revenge, and he manages to sort of rise up, and I think like just watching the rise up in in like almost like a Scarface kind of fashion, (laughs) less less uh, grandiose and insane, but nevertheless, I do find it. I guess you know the equality component as being between. Uh, you know, Poland and and, and the West in yeah. a way, just like finding finding a, a balance and a, a connection between those two.
1: Yeah, I think that that's I think that's what the intention is. Um, you know, because I I think Roger Ebert somebody was saying like, oh, you know, he wants to be equal to her. You know, in, yeah, in in in, in a uh, in a more literal sense, but I think it is meant to be. A metaphor for the uh the newly capitalist poland and you know it's it's place among the other european uh countries and uh, it's
0: almost like you know having an inferiority complex
1: right and and it it's it being the most polish of the three colors films it it is you know yeah. fitting that that's the subject matter and uh so it's and it's also employing you know the the two actors from the uh uh, Decalogue tens. it's, it, it, again, who played brothers, again, like, I, you know, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's the most feel-good film, even if they're, you know, he's, you know, sometimes doing some shady things to, to reassert himself, you know, economically, but uh, <laughs> at the same time, it's like, you know, this guy is, like, shit upon, like, so hard in the first, like, half of this film, that to see him kind of, you know, the underdog kind of, you know, rise to power. It's, you know, it, this is like a, a feel-good mechanism that goes back to the Depression era kind of American films. I mean, this is yeah, nothing I new that. that this is a, uh, yeah. And you, know, and, you know, you want, you know, <laughs> you want Julie Delpy to get, <laughs> you know, screwed over because she's horrible to him. And, you know, uh, but at the same time, I don't know how, how much to go to the very ending of it, but like... Uh, you know, it's it's you know, it's it's a really engaging, subtle uh, kind of commentary, but it's also you know very funny and very you know. Uh, I think after the, the the solemn poetry of blue, it's kind of a bracing uh, switch for the better, uh, to, you know, so that these are not. I think that's the thing that maybe surprised people at the time that they were maybe expecting like some kind of stylistic consistency that the the films are all, you know, they all stand on their own as, as great films. Like they don't need one another. I think white benefited the most in terms of the attention it got by being sandwiched between blue and, uh, and red. But I think that like you're saying, like, you know, watching it now, I mean, it's, it's at least an equal to blue, but in a, uh, just in a different register a different key
0: oh it's in a totally different key like you know maybe blue is in a minor key this is in a major key it's it's less understated um you know it has it has a lot of irony going for it but um you know i mean at the same time I, i do think it speaks again you know in the same way a lot of the decalogue films do um to humanity and just the nature of and flaws of people in terms of, you know, the the problem with equality is that I think we all want it, but everybody wants more. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like like I think that's the problem. Is like we think we want to be equal, but then th- there's this like at the beginning, in a way, Julie Delpy is overpowering him, and she is getting off on that in a way, and then it, the the reversal happens. You know, like she, he wants to be equal to her, but then he gets to, you know, essentially just exact revenge and reclaim his dignity that way. Yeah, uh, and then you know, and, and and equated to that is you know uh, an economic um, equality. <laughs> you know, to to you know to the idea of equating um, money with sexuality and power. That's the one thing I think about when I think of white. Is like, yeah, that that's kind of a. A broad, very direct theme to address, Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's entertaining, and I still think it's you know um, a part of the trilogy and should be. And I really enjoy it on its own. And I, you know, obviously, I I will always be a fan of Julie Delpy, and i I find I find the whole story um, really, really interesting in light of it's like going. It's it's like I want to do the antithesis of Blue now. Um, you know, that's kind of like what I think he decided to try out. And I'm sure at some point he saw like a Billy Wilder movie and maybe wanted to have his own take on that within this trilogy in a way.
1: Um, it's, it's 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 a black comedy. Yeah. Uh, a black comedy named white. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the, uh, the, uh, I sounded like,
0: I sounded like the Pillsbury Doughboy for no reason. I don't know why. Sorry. That's
1: Go ahead. Correct, right? <laughs> see, uh, so then, uh, wrapping it up with red. Um, oh boy! I mean, was so? Did you see them in order then when they r- originally came out? I believe so. So, what was your first take on uh, when they first came out? Did was was red your favorite then? Yes, and
0: I was so to- Like. 1994 was the first year I ever made a top ten list. Mm-hmm. You know, and um,
1: yeah, choose, choose between Red and Pulp Fiction. Yep, just like the Can Jerry. Yep,
0: pretty much. <laughs> I that's exactly how I felt at the time. Uh, and you know, I was, I was a huge fan of Shawshank Redemption at the time. I still kind of like it, see yeah. me. But um, <laughs> you know, it the opening shot. It's funny because uh, like a couple years yeah. later, I remember seeing Bound, and uh, there's there's this one shot in the movie Bound where they they follow a phone line.
1: Oh, that's right. I wonder if that's a reference to Red. And I was
0: like, that is a weird movie to reference in in this gangster mafia lesbian movie. But right. I just I just remember like because my 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 memory of that opening shot of Red is so strong because like. This was at a time where I hadn't seen anything like that before. Um, I just was, I, I, God, Red is one of my all-time favorite movies and definitely my favorite Kislovsky movie. It works in every way, shape, and form. I there's nothing I don't like about it, and I think it's just it's it's one of the most interesting portrayals of uh you know of a of a relationship between two people. Who probably wouldn't have connected in real life, but they just they just have um, sort of randomly, um, unexpectedly because you know she hit um, this former judge's dog and brings brings the dog, but the judge doesn't care. He's completely indifferent to the fact that his pet is harmed, and so she decides to take care of the pet. But really, the the the, the central story of this involves listening to phone conversations a la The Conversation, almost. Oh, yeah. Uh, And...
1: You can make that connection, but you're right. It does have that. But, Um,
0: yeah, I just... Man, the relationship that develops between these two people and then how that branches off into these other relationships really is some of the best storytelling you'll ever see.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think it's... I mean, there's not, like, any hyperbolic praise you could you know, heap upon red that would, you know, not be accurate. I I don't think, I think, I mean, it's, it's exactly everything that you want in good film. (laughs) Like visually beautiful, interesting ideas, great performances. I mean, um, but let me ask you this. So like the double life of Veronique, this is a film that has this, um, you know, I mean, it's, It's clearly working as some kind of fantasy or metaphor, but like the 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 young man that is potential love interest for the Irene Jacob character, who is uh, in a relationship that totally mirrors the judge's past, uh, almost to the letter. Do you think that that person is real?
0: Hmm, I never thought of it in context of it being surreal or um, fantastical. I, I
1: don't think of it... I mean, I think that he's supposed to be real, but at the same time, you know, the the, the whole idea that he could be living out the judge's life exactly in the past is a very unique a kind of fantasy element. Yeah. And, if it, and if it isn't meant to be that, then the fact that he never interacts with the Irene Jacob character until the, very the judge end. is watching it on television and it could just be his projection. That's interesting. Um, it's something I, I think I don't know. I mean, I don't know that it plays that way to me. I think I just take it at face value that that's how the events are and it is just this kind of surreal coincidence but um it, is, it was just an just an idea that i just thought i'd throw uh throw it to see what you thought i did, of it. i did
0: just think of it as coincidence and i mean it's a movie that sort of plays with those expectations of what's really happening but at the same time i think it's it's still based in reality for the most part i th- as far as i can tell yeah but i mean you know the the narrative is reliant on Obviously, again, we got we got telephone technology. The judges, the judge listens into the, his neighbor's telephone conversations, and there are several telephone calls that take place in the film, including like you know a, a dissolving relationship that uh, Jac- that Irene Jacob has with her long distance boyfriend. Yeah, and that's that that whole that whole thing is really interesting. That you know she's not able to connect with somebody she should be able to, but is actually connecting with this judge. Who she's trying not to be judgmental towards? Uh, you know, I mean, like, yeah. You, on one hand, you can sort of look at it as again, there's some broad strokes being presented here throughout. You know, just the, just the very opening shot, you know, in, indicating like, oh, just we're all connected, and you know, we got these conversations taking place, and we got it. You know, the judges are obviously going to be listening in, but then there's this there. There is this moment, I gotta say, that makes me, you know, rethink your um, hypothesis there with the storm kind of happening. And it's, it's, it does sort of take it into this fantastical place without it being, with it still being grounded in reality. It's just, it sort of walks
1: that fine line. Yeah, well the, um, I'm trying to think of what I was going to say about the, um, oh, just... In, in a way, some of the ideas remind me of the earlier Polish films because the um, the whole notion of privacy, yeah, uh, seems to touch on some of his concerns about his old uh, former life as a documentarian and people having a right to their privacy. And like, that's really all that he is doing wrong. He's just he's you know, like the Decalogue, you know, playing God by being this impartial. Uh, just observing, omniscient kind of presence in these people's lives, not not taking any action on them, just kind of listening and observing. But even that is somehow villainous behavior um, in, in, a, in a very gentle way. Um, hmm. The violation of their privacy. I mean, that's all he's really doing wrong. He's not he's not using that information to harm anybody. But you, you, still, the film is. I don't think the film supports that behavior. I think no, um, I don't think you know, so. It's, it's seen as a good thing when he. Um, I don't know how we're we going to spoil it. You know what, He's no longer doing that, right? Um, but uh, this is something else I was going to ask you. Do, a lot of the characters in these films are kind of like solitary free agents in a way. Like they are not completely tied in with their communities, um, and maybe that's a generalization. But see if we, if we think about it, you know, we think about you know, the Irene Jacob characters in, uh, red or even in double Ed And then, uh, you think about, the uh, Julie Binoche and blue, you think about, um, I mean, what's his name? Is it Carol in white? I yeah. mean, he's, he's, uh, he's kind of going it alone, especially in the first half of the film. Um, like these are not studies of, of characters kind of working, you know, you know, say, like in part of a community kind of way I, and I I'm just wondering if you um yeah I can see that a little bit I mean I wonder if he's
0: you know kind of contemplating on the lack of real communication between people um in a communal sense or at the same time is this is this you know just kind of like a in a way to observe the plight of an individual by just you know like okay this is how a person is, you know, dealing with what they're dealing with on their own, completely alone in a way, isolated. Uh, They have difficulty... Uh, Most of these characters do have... Maybe that's why I like these movies so much. Um, They have difficulties with interpersonal communication sometimes.
1: Do you think that that's in any way a reflection of, um, I mean, someone coming from the communist background and, like, collectivist thinking like to tell stories of of individuals and like maybe the downside of individualism hmm the loneliness of it like the alienation of it yeah. i i i'm not like asking with like a particular answer in mind i just like something i was thinking of as watching all these films in succession that makes sense um,
0: though now that you bring it up like i i think pretty much every protagonist is going at it alone more or less you know yeah. i mean maybe the, you know maybe some of them have marriages but a lot of are dissolving or they're dealing with loss or they're, they're contemplating the validity of their relationships and what they, what they mean in the grand scheme of things. But I mean, obviously Veronica is the one I connect to the most emotionally because like when she says that whole thing to her, to her dad about like, I feel like I'm a part of something or I'm connected to somebody like he she she says that pretty early on in the film and I've I've yeah. definitely felt that but it's not like so overt like oh I feel like there's another me out there or I feel like it's just like a feeling of I'm connected to something but I don't know what maybe it is God but I don't know for sure um I couldn't right. tell you but you know I think he 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 intentionally leaves things ambiguous so whoever is watching it can insert themselves into it and maybe for some people that's you know a cop out or kind of frustrating but I find that to be a huge reason why I watch movies in the first place, to, to insert yeah. myself into a story, um, you know, not, not out of narcissism, but to experience, um, you, know, uh, you know, somebody's uh, plight and to see how I would respond to it or see how they respond to it. But it's, it's really just um, a deeply subjective experience when you're watching a Kieslowski movie and i yeah. i appreciate that more and more and with something like something like red i think it, again it is commenting on on technology and interpersonal communication in a way that i i
1: really respect well well i mean if you think about how the the weather yeah. uh the weather lady and how that resonates with the the computers weather predictions or ice predictions in Decalogue 1 oh man um you're you're, you're going you're
0: going places bill you're going places good job
1: (laughs) um you know there's definitely uh some some similarity there Uh, in you know i i don't know if you want to to, like spoil the ending of of red but um Uh, you know it it is it's it's funny because it's like both a happy and tragic it's
0: kind of mystifying um it's a really fascinating coincidence that I. I wonder if it does it mean something thematically, other than like oh they're all tied together. I mean, obviously in like white Juliette Binoche's character appears in a cameo in the
1: courtroom. Right. Um, does does uh, there's actually there's actually less interconnection than even the decalogue has though. I mean. Yeah, because the Decalogue shares characters, and even one story is retold again in a different story. <laughs>
0: right, right, right. Exactly.
1: Very meta, but uh... but it
0: yeah that ending is it's one of those things where people kind of go oh that's that's a way to bring it all together. That's clever, Ha! Huh? Um, yeah, but I don't know if it what it means in the in the grand scheme of things if it's like.
1: Does it tie into the theme of fraternity?
0: <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, I mean, obviously, all the characters and all the films sort of come together and they survive something. And what does that all mean? And you know, for, for for each of them per se, like, how do they all wind up there anyway? Um, right. It, well,
1: and and I could see that being, you know that feeling contrived if you want to go at it, you know, in a very literal minded way. But I, you know, I like what, like, is it, is it set in Geneva, right? Like why are the characters from Poland and the characters from Paris? Like everybody's, in, but, you know, but then again, like, why no, do you need I know that's, that's exactly irrational...
0: <laughs> the point too. I think a lot of yeah. my favorite filmmakers, you don't have to look for rationality in, in, what they're trying to convey. I mean, you you know, again, you forego logic. I mean, I, that is, that is probably like the biggest epiphany I had when I saw Magnolia and the frogs is I'm going with this. Fuck you. If you don't. And you know, that was kind of like my response in the theater. And I, I mean, maybe being younger saying, fuck you. If you don't, is kind of a jerky thing to do. like as my age now, I would uh, remove the fuck you. Like, I would just be like, okay, you know, if you don't like the frogs, I understand. That's okay. But at the time when I saw it, I was like, fuck you, man. The frogs are awesome. And that's that's all I'm going to say. If it, you know, it, maybe it's just some metaphysical existential yeah. bullshit, but I love it. I love the fact that he's going all out. And I think Kieslowski does that a lot throughout his career. I'm not necessarily like equating the frogs to, you know, some of the stuff that he does, but... He just does really interesting things throughout, inclu- you know, in, yeah. including red. There's moments where, like again, like the storm hits and, you know, everything the power goes out and they they change the light bulb and the light bulb goes out again, like little things like that. And throughout Veronique, where I'm just like, that is a great touch. What does it mean? I don't know. I just love the fact that it's there.
1: Yeah. Now it's. This is something I, I forgot to mention when we were talking about Blue, and uh, so I just want to interject it real quick, but did you know who uh, – y- did you saw Hiroshima Mon Amour in the last year, right? Oh, yeah. Did you know that the woman that plays the mother of Juliet Binoche's character in uh, Blue is is Emmanuel Riva, uh, the star of Hiroshima Mon Amour? Oh, shit. you Wow. So, it's an inside joke in a way that, you know, cause that whole thing, like, and yeah. I remember, you know, this and that. No, you don't. <laughs> you know, like, like that's like that dialogue for like half of, uh, Hiroshima but like, yeah, she's <laughs> like, you know, uh, Juliette Banesh is trying to forget everything of her past, but like her mom's already forgotten her. And it's funny because it's the woman from, <laughs> Hiroshima who you know, memory being, you know, a big factor in, in, uh, in that film. I just, it's, it's just kind of something that makes me laugh in a, <laughs> Like, I thought I'd mention it if you didn't... I, did, I didn't pick up on her casting the first time I saw Blue, because I hadn't seen Hiroshima and at the time that I first saw it. <laughs> mm. And, you know, obviously, like, you know, it's an older woman now. It's, but, uh... But to yeah.
0: reframe the ending of Red, I wonder if maybe, like, in a way, I mean, despite the fact that it is kind of sad w- of what happened and what they ex- experienced, there's a sense of community all of a sudden amongst those people who've shared a tragedy, in a way you know like all those yeah. all those characters maybe had been alone and were you know isolated and experiencing life from the outside looking in now they're now 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 they've now they're all survivors more or less now they're all band together in a way yeah. so maybe it's like kind of a happy thing
1: that they're experiencing community through tragedy i don't know and I think, well, and it's also, it's also like the, uh, the judge and the Irene Jacob character in, in an indirect way falling in love if, if the young man is supposed to be him at another time in life. Like it's, it's like some sort of like miraculous romance, yeah. uh, you know, which, you know, if you, if you want to take it too, too literal mindedly, like it's. it's a a ridiculous conceit (laughs) but it's but it feels correct for that story um i don't know it's 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 a film like like any of these later Koslowski films that like is open to a lot of different uh you know interpretation and you know that film especially is uh the one that is most full of visual rhymes Uh, We didn't really get into that so much. You know, Blue has that too. I forget if I was looking for that. I guess it's in white also. I mean, these are the kind of things that like criterion visual essays are like made for because they will, you know, point them all out if you didn't find them for yourself. Um, But, you know, shots that uh, resonate, you know, pretty graphically with other shots, you know, earlier in the film. Um, I mean, Red has, you know, I mean, the, the way that... The uh, oh, yeah. the advertisement of uh, her, you know, is framed in the same way as her on the the, the newscast at the end. I mean, that's just one of like you know half a dozen examples in rent. But like, I um, can't get over that. Like, if I'd been in a, in a theater and saw that,
0: I would have been so obnoxious that I probably would have clapped. I I, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a stupid. Wa- like, it's hard to not externalize my joy of just like doing that. It's just that is so such a great visual motif. Yeah, and then at the very end when you see that shot, I'm just like, that is so good. I love you, Kizlowski. That is so awesome. Yeah,
1: it's, um, it's a it's a remarkable film, and like I mean, you don't need to see blue or white necessarily to connect with red. I mean, I, that's a thing that I should you know we might want to stress is that these films totally stand up on their own without. The trilogy. I mean, they, they, they benefit from that connection, but these are, I mean, outside of like, you know, these characters from blue and white showing up, you know, at one point in red, you know, uh, there's really not any um, need to see them in one particular order, or even, you know, if one sounds more appealing. I mean, they're very different stories. I mean, this I is- will
0: say that seeing Red last. It's probably a good. I don't know because just the way it ends. Well, yeah.
1: I, mean, I, I mean, I know Roger Ebert had said it was like the best among equals or something like that. You know, and it's it does it does have a, uh, it feels like the correct ending. You know, um, you see to, see to see them in sequence, it does feel like um, it resolves something bigger than itself. It re- you know, like it's somehow tying everything neatly together. I mean, as neatly as it's going to be, because I mean, they're it's it's um, you know, these are open to interpretation, as I think we've probably reiterated like a good thousand times.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, but, it, it's certainly, it ties it ties the three films together in a way, certainly. It's not like the ending of uh, Veronique, which we didn't really mention too, about like, the differences. There was two endings of Veronique that are interesting, because like I love both of them. I love I like yeah. I like the idea of her touching the tree and then it fades out. I think that's beautiful, but I also love the idea of yeah. her run, running up and hugging her dad at the end of the movie, which I guess is a more emotionally satisfying moment that uh I guess the Weinstein's asked Kizlowski to do. Um Yeah. So I mean that's that's yeah. that's really interesting. Um, to think of him having to compromise, you know, th- obviously I think that happened a lot with, 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 with Miramax, but um, that's, that's oh, a sure. horror story. I just, I, I love, I love, man, the more we talk about Kizlowski, the more I'm like, I can't wait for <laughs> part two now. Cause um, yeah. I mean, there's still so much we can talk about. I did not get to see uh, no end and I kind of want to just because if you say it's like uh, the blueprint for blue, then um,
1: it's, I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm interested it's, I th- I'd be curious to hear your take on it. I don't think you're going to prefer it to, you know, Red or Oh No, Blind Chance. But it's definitely there's a lot that you'll like about it. And it's it's I mean, this guy was a great filmmaker. You know, there's not there's not a Krasinski film that does not have a lot of good ideas and good, uh, you know, just re- like a real sense of like how to tell a story. Um, I don't know. I mean. Yeah, I'm glad that you you invited me to do this. I, it's not, he's not a director. I, I often, I, I think sometimes I forget about him, even though I know he's one of the masters because, you know, the, the best, the best film is this 10 hour behemoth. And then the, the three colors I'd seen a lot growing up, but then I haven't returned them as much in recent years. So going back to see some of this stuff or some of it, some of it for the first time, like uh blank chance. It's, um, you know, I mean, it's it's a remarkable body of work, you know. And there's we didn't even get into the um and I didn't revisit uh the things that were made uh, out of screenplays uh heaven um and uh actually there's another one um that came after that, hell. Really? Yeah, that um interesting. Does it, does it, do you Do you ever see that movie No Man's Land, I think it is, the uh it's like a war film that actually beat out uh, Amelie for the oh, best foreign language on Oh, that's right. Insider. I haven't... That seen... director did hell, I think. Huh. Which, confusingly, I might be mispronouncing it. I think it's... Um, I think the French title is Le Enfer, which is not to be confused with another film <laughs> by Chabral called Le Enfer, and both of them style Emmanuel Bayard. <laughs> oh, my God. So yeah, I when, think, you're looking, I think, when you're looking for it, you got to be careful because it's a whole other film with the same title and same star.
0: <laughs> I just wonder the loose, well, not the loose connection, but just the the connection of Tom Tykwer doing a Kislowski movie. It's kind of funny because, like, I mean, or a Kieslowski script because he did Heaven and, yeah. uh, you know, Run, Lola, Run, Blind Chance. Kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, I uh, haven't gone back to heaven since. I know it was I a new film. saw it. I, think, I saw it too, but I yeah. don't remember
0: it at all, and that's kind of crazy. I mean, obviously, Cate Blanchett's great. I'm sure. I'm sure there are things about it I I liked. I just can't recall it. I would
1: I would be interested in just watching that at some point again. It's it's. I mean, as of this. Day we're recording, it's on Netflix. It's, uh, so it is streaming. Oh, okay. I was gonna try. I, we bumped up the recording day to uh, by a day. I actually, was gonna try to squeeze it in today if we weren't recording. But you know, we, you know, we we're covering the films at Kislowski as director. So I know that we didn't harp on uh, every uh, Schrader scripted film on the Schrader conversation. So I didn't think it was no. too crucial that we co- <laughs> catch Koslowski scripted but not directed films. But well, uh, I gotta say.
0: I'm I'm coming out here and saying that he might be my third favorite director now after uh going through all this and talking about him further. I he emphasizes the importance behind every individual human life and he presents morality without being moralistic and preachy. I think like the, when I watch his movies, I can't wait to rewatch them again. Like I think they're fascinating experiences that I've never experienced in any other film. I just, I think like the three colors trilogy. Uh, well, obviously let's just do our top fives. Cause we get like, I just, I, the more I think about yeah. it, the more I respect and appreciate and, uh, want to deconstruct his work even further. I just, I'm so glad we got to do this and we'll probably yeah. do a sequel episode simply because there's so much more we could talk about with this guy.
1: I love him. Okay. Well, um, do you want me to go first? Yes. You agree? Okay. Um, well, I'm gonna. I don't know if this is cheating or not, but I think of Decalogue as a film. Um, so I'm gonna count it as a film. A one ten-hour film. Okay. Yeah. So I'm gonna say Decalogue is my favorite. Uh, the Double Life of Veronique is my second favorite. Um, number three would be Red. Uh, mm-hmm. Number two would be Blue. I'm sorry. Uh, hold on. Like <laughs> I can't count. So one is decalogue. Two is uh, double light vernique. Three is red. Four is blue. Five is white.
0: Okay. This is where it gets weird. Like I mean, I guess it's hard because oh man, I you know you're right with the decalogue. It would probably tr- trump over everything else. It's just hard for me to like. Okay, is that one whole film? Is it ten short films? I guess you can look at it as one whole film. Um, it originally aired on TV, but it's still it's cinematic It's just okay, I mean, I'm gonna stick with the films for now <laughs> because like I mean I have one yeah. of the decalogues yeah, you can extend extended can do it that, extended, right? extended films as one of them. so number one is red number two, the double life of Veronique. Number three, a short film about love. Number four is blue. And number five... Oh, wait a minute. That should be the other way around. Number four is white, and number five is blue. All right. <laughs> um, honorable mention The Blind Chance. Yeah, Honorable we'll mention
1: uh, Camera Buff, also for me. Yeah.
0: yeah, a couple of shots in there... Mm. But that's that's neither here nor there. It's still a piece it's, of work.
1: Yeah, I, I really love Camera Buff. Whatever flaws it has, I think it's a real interesting film. But, uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Bill. This was fantastic.
0: I, thank uh, you for having me, yeah. It's nice to sort of um, have an epiphany, too, where it's like, oh, my God, this guy is easily in my top five. Nope, never mind. He's in my top three. I love this guy. So, so would you say that you
1: had more fun researching this than Toby Hooper?
0: Yes. <laughs> Without
1: question. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I would agree with that. But um, I I am glad uh yeah, cuz I know that uh that you had told me that you uh you found these some of these uh, films to be uh very emotionally powerful uh maybe even draining experiences when watched, you know, like uh in succession uh... yeah no
0: I mean it's just it's difficult because like I have such a you know intense response to them and you know trying watching them late at night and half awake half asleep and some of them feel like lucid dreams and I don't know some, some, some emotions were just being conjured up that I couldn't even figure out why or like what triggered them I just like maybe I just love this movie so much that I'm overwhelmed and uh that's an amazing feeling to have and i i think it's a huge reason why i love doing this podcast
1: yeah because- i mean i'm I was gonna say this was uh this is a conversation that i was like a little nervous about just knowing that these are tricky films to talk about and i you know hopefully you know it wasn't too frustrating at times you know <laughs> for, for listeners we try to fumble our way through talking about something like double f of veronique or even blue but uh I mean, I couldn't recommend film more than 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 a lot of what we talked about today. I mean, I don't think there's a, there's not like a risky Kraslavsky film to check out. They're all worth your time. Yeah, if you love film,
0: I I, I agree. I think um, like a good gateway would be something like Camera Buff, just because it's. I wouldn't say it's more conventional, but it's certainly accessible, and you know, obviously, Red is my favorite for a reason. Uh, but I think like Camera Buff is like the introduction in a way. It's like the beginning, and it's also very autobiographical too. And you get the, you get a sense of what happened in Poland at the time.
1: Yeah, I would say. I mean, if I was recommending it to the layman, I would say Red is the most. Uh, I think it's the most accessible film of the Koslowski films. But like, uh, yeah, it definitely. If is. you, but, but if you're looking to. To uh, you know, to, to to watch several of the films um, and get a real sense of Koslowski I and mean, the camera buff is the is is a good place to start. I agree, and then, uh, I mean, Decalogue One and uh, Double Life of Veronique would also be a good places to start. Oh yeah,
0: I might watch the Double Life of Veronique before the year is over again. That's <laughs> just how much I love it. It's amazing. Yeah. So, um, where are you? Are you are you writing in your in
1: your blog? Um, yeah, I will be writing something up, uh, soon. I, I meant to write something up on New York Film Festival and I, I got kind of sidetracked in some things I've been working on, but, uh, I will be updating it again, um, uh, probably before the, uh, end of the year, uh, roundup for, uh, cause I think you're doing a, uh, you know, the traditional best of 2015 type episode and, uh, I'm actually supposed to be on the projection booth, another podcast, Woo-hoo! uh, uh, in January, so I want to have something updated before then too, so that you know, if I mentioned it on, you know, that I won't have something with uh, last updated in 2014 on the uh, <laughs> on my resume. But uh, yeah, you can find me. Uh, I don't have it memorized. You probably should put it in the show notes. Yeah,
0: something <laughs> verite, right? <laughs>
1: um, a tourist oh, trap? A tourist
0: trap. That's it.
1: Dot blogspot
0: yes. dot com, if I recall. E. Yes. Vlogspot. Yeah. Um, I think the next episode for us may not be, um, until next month with Michael Curtiz. I mean, once holidays come rushing in, it gets a little crazy and you know, we got episode 100, we got Michael Curtiz and that's going to, I mean, that's another two parter easily. There's so many movies of his to cover. Oh it's God. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's... I mean, we're going to be covering the classics more or less. Uh, I need to rewatch Casablanca because it's been a few years, so I'm excited for that. And
1: uh, yeah, it's one of the best films ever, absolutely, made, so. without
0: question. <laughs> there's a reason why um, Robert uh, God, what's his name, who re- who was in adaptation? He's like that's the best screenplay ever written. I think uh, oh, yeah. Robert McKee is that his name in the adaptation? I think yeah, uh, I think so. I think yeah. so. But um. So stay tuned for that. I'm sure a bonus episode or two might still come your way. But, um, yeah, a lot's happening. So so bear with me. It's, it's not like you're going to have an interview a week like there was for a little while there. Um, you know, holidays are yeah. busy. Busy times. Um, but thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Bill, for being on the show. It was wonderful.
1: Thank you for, well, thank you for having me. And visit us
0: it. at directorsclubpodcast.com. And do send me those emails at podcast at gmail.com. And like I said, if you just send me an email your name, you could win an Amazon gift card for 25 bucks. And feel free to uh, send a donation our way for the podcast network, for this podcast, over at popcultureclub.net under records slash donate. And uh, a minimum donation of a buck will uh, get you something as well. So... Thank you so much for listening. Depuis si l'entend déjà
1: le hasard a joué avec pas tout à fait prêt à se changer en destin. Qui les rapproche, les éloigne, leur coupe la route et étouffant
0: un rire, ce seul votre one and only